depending on your perspective, it's either fascinating or irritating when the subject of the legacy of Pearl Jam is brought up. It's fascinating if you're one of those, like yours truly curmudgeons, who believe Pearl Jam is not only one of the three greatest American bands of the 1990s, but also the last great American band that genuinely and actually meant something to their legions of multi-generational fans who want their rock heroes to stand for social justice, civil rights, and righteous political causes and not be apologetic about it. It's irritating if you're one of those music fans who think Pearl Jam were, or still are, middle-of-the-road rock with no edge or middling dude-bro jock rock for people to jump around together to. Well, those people are wrong, and we will present an ironclad argument as to why they are wrong. This episode will be the first in an ongoing series of the Curmudgeon Rock Report that takes a big-name band-slash-artist who has an underrated legacy that is explained, discussed, examined, and has a giant, well-deserved spotlight shined on it. Along with celebrated author and concert promoter Ronan Gilonia's special guest, welcome to Pearl Jam, A Legacy. Welcome, everyone, to the 23rd, 23rd edition of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. This is Christopher O'Connor coming to you from suburban Houston. And with me, as always, is Arturo Andrade coming to you from Guangzhou, South Korea. And we host the podcast made just for you. We don't do hot takes. We do honest takes. So then this belongs to you. Who are you? You are the rock geek iconoclastic outsider looking for safe haven in a world where rock no longer predominates. Well, rock and roll sure as heck does predominate here on the Curmudgeon Rock Report, where we not only celebrate the music, we live its majesty in full color and at full force. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some stuff you never knew before. Join our curmudgeonly community. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and all the other places where you find all the other podcasts. Drop us a line at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at curmudgeonpod. And coming very soon, and I mean very soon, you'll be able to become part of our own private Facebook group, where you can share thoughts, musings, and random excitement with fellow travelers among the curmudgeonly path to rock and roll goodness. Well then, how you doing, Arturo? I'm doing great. Uh, speaking about a uh, learning stuff that you might you might learn some stuff. I think uh, our <laughs> our millions and millions of listeners are going to learn a lot about Pearl Jam. Um, I, I, I've been excited about this episode for a while. Um, this series, this obviously our Prince Michael Jackson series uh, is coming to an end very soon. Obviously, those guys eventually died. <laughs> so. uh, yeah, yes, yes, they did. <laughs> Last time I checked, they were still dead. Yeah. So uh, um, we got to come up with a new series and um, this will be the first one in our A Legacy series. Uh, I mean, I'll talk about it a little later, but uh, Pearl Jam seemed like the obvious pick to go with the first band for this, considering how um, they're such a big name band, such a popular band that's also very polarizing. 
But the book that has been published earlier, that was published earlier this year by Ronan Gavoni, um, that been, has got a lot of good reviews. Uh, it, it seemed like the perfect time to like do a spotlight on Pearl Jam and get Mr. Gavoni on the show himself. Yes. Uh, yes, we did. Uh, very excited about that. Uh, and again, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But yeah, Pearl Jam uh, deserves a, uh, a respected, or they deserve respect and they deserve a respectful spotlight. You know, these days, everybody's about the Nirvana and the Soundgarden, and they look back to the early 90s uh, uh, for all the rock and roll. But Pearl Jam is kind of seen as this uh, band that kind of survived. Uh, everybody sees a bunch of dad guys in their mid-50s now. Uh, <laughs> you know, Eddie, Eddie Vedder has the distinct distinction of being the only one of those uh, icons who is alive in yeah. 2021. And not tragically uh, dead uh, at that. So right. uh, for, for whatever reason, uh, that band normalized and then they kind of lost their sheen. Well, damn it, we're giving them the sheen back that they deserve. Chris, do I hear a sound? Uh, why, why, yes, you do. Is it the aliens descending? Uh, is, it, uh, is it dramatic and spooky? Will the creature from the Black Lagoon soon be in our faces? No, folks, we are just entering the parallel universe. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report's parallel universe where we step over to the side where everything is right and we make the rules and we say screw it uh, and stick it to the man and we talk about the stuff that we think uh, should be marquee and is awesome and is progressive and is in your face and deserves uh, full coverage. Uh, this segment, uh, Parallel Universe, uh, it centers on uh, album reviews, but it does give us a chance to uh, talk about how rock and roll continues to be dynamic, that, uh, that there are these artists that are continuing to carry that flag and to carry that spirit. Uh, in a bit, we'll talk about the spirit of the Parallel Universe as much as sort of the music uh, and uh, the attitude uh, that comes out of the music. So... Arturo, uh, tell us what you are focusing on here this week in the Parallel Universe. Yeah, this is the new or the most recent album by uh, My Morning Jacket. Uh, and it's a self-titled album, which is called My Morning Jacket. Now, I will admit I'm kind of cheating a bit here with the Parallel Universe because MMJ, I'm going to call them MMJ, My Morning Jacket, they're actually a pretty big name band. Um, however, as with St. Vincent, whose most recent album was reviewed on this podcast several months ago. Uh, MMJ are a big name artist whom you never hear on the radio, <laughs> you know, um, which is ridiculous when you think about it. Uh, one big holiday from 2003's It Still Moves has all the hallmarks of a classic arena rock anthem. Um, the songs Gideon and Anytime from 2005's Z are tailor-made to come blasting out of the radio. Uh, I'm Amazed from 2008's Evil Urges is one of the best pure pop songs that frontman Jim James has ever written. Yeah, and Never don't forget about Off the Record. Off the yeah, Record. Yeah, That's, that one as that, well. That, that is the most criminally ignored of those songs. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, in the curmudgeonly parallel universe, MMJ are legends. And considering their parallel in the historical timeline... Uh, they probably take the place of Nickelback if we're playing the replacement game. 
their new self-titled album is Cause for Rejoice because it's easily their best album in more than a decade. Um, whereas 2011's Circuital was an uneven affair with a few interesting stylistic departures and 2015's Waterfalls was an underwritten mishmash of overly sentimental slop. Uh, the new album is not just a return to form, but a return to the big guitar sound of their cosmic Southern rock peak uh, naughties albums. Lots of solos, lots of reverb, lots of crunch, lots of epicness, uh, for lack of a better word. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, no, lo- this, this is some epic shit. Yeah. Uh, the long time apart from each other, I think, has also resulted in tighter songwriting, oddly enough. Um, choice tracks, uh, you have never in the real world and in color are typical my morning jacket, like as, as I would call philosophical power ballads. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Never, never in the real world is interesting because it starts off as this, um, like you said, it's almost like kind of a like a slow burning soul. Yeah, uh, ballad, and then it just kind of keeps cranking up, at least in the intensity, not the tempo, but the intensity. Yeah, and at the end, it's just banging, and it's got their best. Uh, it definitely has uh, Carl Bremel and uh, Jim James' best guitar interplay in yeah. a long time. Yeah, it's, it's like layer, cool. layer upon layer of like guitar bravado that somehow avoids machismo. You know, um, you have the Indeed. Devils in the Details, which is like a nine-minute weirdo country shuffle that dissolves into like slightly psychedelic, slightly cosmic jazz territory. You have Complex and Penny for Your Thoughts, which bring My Morning Jacket back to one of their stylistic specialties which is basically driving riff rock that aspires to like gospel-esque emotional heights. So um, for this old curmudgeon, uh, this album is a tear-inducing heroic comeback for one of America's most treasured bands, or should be one of America's most treasured bands. And now for the neck for your album, Chris, you're going to talk about this kind of really is, it's a parallel universe within a parallel universe. (laughs) Uh, The the next album you're going to talk about is an artist who's literally trying to recreate her back catalog. (laughs) Yeah, no, absolutely. This is uh, one of the more interesting uh, stories uh, in rock and roll in years. Uh, So Taylor Swift uh, everybody knows Taylor Swift, household name. She sold uh, many, many, many records um, and is uh, quite revered uh, by the uh, the mainstream uh, rock press, as I'm slowly starting to discover for good reason. And I'll get the, into that in a second. So she starts her career. Uh, fascinating story. She moves to Nashville when she's 14, and she really gets a training from professional songwriters in Nashville. And you know, has that talent and has that drive. And so uh, she signs at the time in 2006, a six record deal uh, yeah. with her, uh, her label uh, at the time to do, you know, basically, so for it's 12 years and six albums that she's uh, going to do. And she does them. And from basically from the first one to the last one, they're all huge hits. Uh, they all, uh, sell like crazy, especially read in 1989, 1989, obviously being the peak in 2014. So she comes to the end of the contract and now she's got all the power in the world. And she's like, okay, now I'm going to, uh, go on and sign with another of uh, universal music group, a subsidiary, 
uh, Republic. And uh, the old uh, label, by the way, was Big Machine Records. And so she signs with Republic. As part of that deal, she gets ownership of her master's. Uh, which, uh, you know, is quite an accomplishment. Uh, congratulations, Taylor. Uh, here was the problem. She did not own uh, the big machine uh, masters. Now, at some point here, I believe it was in uh, 2018 or 2019, uh, uh, big machine is bought out uh, by uh, a pure business guy, uh, basically a VC. Uh, I don't know if he's private equity VC, uh, a guy named Scooter Braun. Uh, buys the uh, the cattle, uh, basically buys uh, uh, the big machine records. Taylor Swift wants her masters. And so Scooter's like, okay, fine, but I'll trade you. You give me another record and I'll give you an old record. And she was like, screw that. Well, they you know, released a live record uh, without her permission. And then Scooter Braun turns around and sells uh, Taylor Swift's uh, masters for $300 million to, uh, to a PE company. And so Taylor Swift says, okay, screw you. You own those six records to the masters. I'm going to record or re-record all six. Uh, okay. And so she started doing this earlier this year. Uh, she did a re-recording of the album that truly made her famous, Fearless, from 2008. And it was a startling facsimile. They basically brought back all the, the same people, did the same record and basically did a note perfect, uh, uh, re, uh, re doing reversion uh, of it. Uh, however, with, uh, better technology, a few, uh, tweaks and, uh, Taylor Swift. Now at back then she was an 18 year old girl or eh, 18, 19. Now she's a 31 year old woman. And she's singing these doughy-eyed teen breakup songs that at the time, you know, maybe they were universal, but I didn't pay much attention. Why? Because they were doughy-eyed teenage girl uh, bitter breakup songs. Not my genre. Not yours either. Right, Arturo? No way. Right. And so, okay, so that's fine. But then uh, just in the last month, uh, she released the second of these and it was a re-release of her most critically celebrated and really from her hardcore fans, most uh, uh, revered record, uh, 2012's Red. And she's calling these albums Taylor's Version. So this is Red, Taylor's Version. And uh, same exercise. Basically, the re-recorded spiteful version is what that really means. Yeah, bas basically, this is the F.U. Uh, to uh, Scooter Braun. And so the idea is I own these songs. These are my songs and I'm going to re-record them. And again, she brought back virtually all of the same people, all of the same producers and uh, basically the same arrangements. But like I said, with a few tweaks and it is striking when you listen to the old versions of say 22 or all too well. And uh, you know, some of these, uh, what I'm finding out are really great songs. Uh, and uh, you put them side by side, there are slight differences. The main thing being the depth and feeling of uh, Taylor's voice. It's not quite as kiddish. Uh, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the big uh, pop song on that is We're Never uh, Getting Back Together. And, you know, at the time, it was kind of recorded as maybe not a tongue-in-cheek, but kind of a, uh, 
kind of a bitchy, uh, but like kind of girly, bitchy uh, send off uh, to this boyfriend. Well, on this version, she sounds like, you know, it's almost like she's saying, did I mean it back then? Yeah, I meant it. And so now I'm going to say it with even more conviction. And, uh, and so this, this, this idea of taking control of your music, revisiting your music when you're a decade older, uh, and it holds up. So it makes me think that uh, not only was this girl a pro's pro as a songwriter and a singer and just an otherworldly talent, but she just had this sort of extraordinary maturity uh, in uh, what she was saying and the, the feeling that she had, you know, all too well uh, is getting a lot of attention, especially this week for a couple of reasons. One, uh, this record has a 10 minute long version of uh, this song, which was condensed to about five minutes. Uh, this is why we have producers and editors and A&R men folks uh, to kind of sometimes save writers, uh, these, these artists from themselves. Uh, but the 10 minute uh, version is getting attention because it, it goes off on these, it, it's angrier and it's more feminist and it gets really detailed and kind of ugly <laughs> in, in a couple of spots as far as the, the lyrics. So there's a rawness there. Uh, that she maybe she wasn't allowed back then. And then she just put out, and I haven't seen it, and I don't want to invest in it, but she made a mini-movie based on it, which is one of these now viral hits and, like, you know, talk of the Internet and, and, and all of that. Uh, additionally, with this record, so uh, that original record was uh, 16 songs. Uh, then they released a deluxe version that had four additional songs, and then there was a charity single called Ronin, which is a very good song, uh, and so all in all, back then, there were 21 songs. Well, those 21 songs are here, but she also now brings out nine uh, songs. Uh, ironically enough, she calls it From the Vault. Uh, for all of you curmudgeonly uh, groupies out there, yes, uh, the vault is something that Taylor Swift is, is now uh, borrowing uh, as a concept. Uh, and a couple of these songs were actually recorded by mainstream country artists. And so these are Taylor doing her versions. She's got a duet on there with uh, country superstar, Chris uh, Stapleton. So this kind of proves that uh, these are all songs that she wrote as part of this um, recording process. And maybe at, maybe at one point, maybe she wanted to do a double record. Uh, thank goodness she didn't because a lot of this stuff does not hold up uh, in, uh, in concert or, or next to the stuff on the record. So, uh, main thing here being that, uh, we admire Taylor Swift for having the balls to do this. And the fact that she pulls it off, I mean, virtually it's like note perfect with a little bit better production and deeper singing, but it's the same people, the same arrangements, nine years later, capturing the same magic. Uh, that's incredible. I, I I'll keep this short. I think red sucks. <laughs> um, I honestly, Slate, uh, Slater, uh, uh, Taylor Swift has did not has not made any music that I liked until last year. The the, the double shot that she did last year with the folklore and Evermore, where I finally felt like I was listening to a real singer songwriter, not someone pandering to like you know crappy mainstream country music tastes and you know silly teenagers. So um, I I respect the fact that she's trying to like reclaim, uh, I guess, some kind of symbolic ownership of her music. That's cool, man. Great. Do cool. it. Uh, do it. Um, I didn't like it the first time. 
I didn't like it the second time when I heard a little bit of uh, pieces of this. I was like, eh, it's, 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 it's old Taylor Swift music. And I never liked old Taylor Swift. I like, I like modern Taylor Swift. Uh, I'd rather listen to her. As far as I'm concerned, she starts with folklore. From there on, I'll check her out. Uh, with that, we now leave the parallel universe and we come back to ours. And like we said before, we are starting our legacy series. And we're starting it with Pearl Jam. Arturo, uh, lead us in. Let me explain. Yes. Now, with our Prince versus Michael Jackson series coming to an end very soon, uh, this episode that you're listening to now, folks, will mark the beginning of a new ongoing series called A Legacy. Basically, when you see it written out, it'll be the name of the artist slash band, Ellipses, A Legacy. And in this series, we will take a beloved band or artist of yours truly, curmudgeons, and do a retrospective analysis of their careers, their albums, their artistic impact and influence, and generally why they mattered in their time and still matter today for younger generations of rock music fans. Uh, one of the tenets of this series is that we select a band slash artist that isn't typically or normally thought of to have a massive legacy, but they actually do. You know, hence we avoid the usual names, you know, the Beatles, David Bowie, Nirvana, our beloved Nirvana. We named our podcast after one of their songs, but we're not going to put, we're not including those kinds of bands uh, in this legacy series. So for this maiden episode of the legacy series, we will go in depth into the career arc, the impact and the lasting legacy of arguably the greatest and most generation-defining American band of the 1990s, and that is Pearl Jam. Now, the term generation-defining is apt because uh, the argument can be made that Pearl Jam was the last American band that meant as much to their fans, uh, much like the Grateful Dead kept the hippie dream alive for uh, multiple decades and generations of fans um, Pearl Jam continue to fly the flag for anti-conservative establishmentarianism and liberal, socially progressive activist causes. They talk the talk, they walk the walk, and they continue to do so, even when rock music seems to have subsided into a niche musical genre. And more importantly, helping their curmudgeons discuss all things Pearl Jam related is a very special guest. We mentioned um, uh, his name at the uh, beginning of the show. Ronan Gavoni, a noted concert promoter and music writer, published a book earlier this year called Not For You, Pearl Jam and the Present Tense, a splendidly written overview of Pearl Jam's career as a recording and touring band that also serves as a delightful meditation on fandom, rock geekiness, and overall musical obsessiveness. So the end of 2021 is drawing near. It's been a hell of a curmudgeonly journey through this post-COVID era. Or is it pre-COVID? Or is it post-COVID? Anyway, it's about that time where we start contemplating. What were the best popular music albums of the year? My pick for top albums? The list includes efforts from Lucy Dacus and Mdu Mokhtar. Arturo's list? He'll name Genesis Owasu and Idols, among others. Both of us would name Amo and the Sniffers as one of this year's biggest winners. But what do you think? This is your podcast, after all. Tell us your picks for the albums, songs, and artists of the year. Weigh in by writing to us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com 
or perhaps DM us at curmudgeonpod on Twitter. The uh, curmudgeons are very excited uh, in this episode to have. Woohoo! <laughs> yes, yeah, that, that was the sound of Arturo Andrade's excitement. Uh, we're very excited to uh, have a special guest on with us. Uh, uh, we wanted to explore uh, Pearl Jam in an episode uh, of the uh, 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 of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. And we figured, well, we know that there's somebody out there who has written a very authoritative volume on the band from the perspective of somebody that not only appreciates music uh, and uh, the culture uh, that uh, guys of our age uh, grew up with uh, in the uh, in the early '90s and since then, but you know he literally you know like he wrote the book on this band and uh, knows them intimately, and we just wanted to get him on here. And so, uh, without further ado, uh, we want to re- uh, introduce everyone to Ronan Gavoni, uh, the author of "Not for You: Pearl Jam and the Present Tense." which is available on Bloomsbury Academic uh, now uh, for everyone to read. Ronan, hello. Hello. Great to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. No, we we definitely appreciate um, uh, you uh, being on here. And so just to get started, I guess we'll we'll keep uh, this sort of open-ended. Not for you, uh, Pearl Jam in the present tense. Uh, In the beginning of uh, the book, uh, you say that the idea for this book and the start of this project uh, resulted from uh, a bit of a communal experience that you had seeing the band, uh, I believe at Wrigley Field in 2016. So if you could take us just through first, you know, who you are, your background, uh, how you came to, uh, to uh, appreciate and uh uh, follow Pearl Jam as fervently as uh, you have, and then you know what you intended with this book and what it's about. So first, thank you for the very kind introduction, and again for having me on. Um, I would say, you know, the short way to put it, um, I'm a child of the '90s, like you guys. I uh, was born in 1978 and was a teenager, 13, 14 years old when the first Pearl Jam record came out and the first few videos, uh, you know, came on MTV. I was in high school, you know, when Pearl Jam unplugged and Nirvana unplugged and Siamese dream and, in utero and all these classic records came out. And, um, you know, I'm, uh, I work in music. I, uh, you know, my, my day job, uh, is slash was in classical music, which is a, different story. I can get into that, hmm. but uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a rock person. I've, I had seen Pearl Jam many times and um, I wrote a book uh, that came out in uh, 2016. Uh, it was a volume in the 33 and a third series, uh, which as you probably know is short books about kind of classic albums. I wrote about this cult band, cult punk rock band called Jawbreaker. Um, and just basically as I turned the book in and was kind of gratuitously, you know, rewarding myself for, <laughs> uh, for just, uh, getting the manuscript out. Um, I went to Chicago with my friend and went to see a pair of shows and was just kind of hanging out in the, uh, you know, in the field. And, um, 
as I as I talk about in the very beginning, um, I had an encounter which you know is is kind of not that uncommon I think at Pearl Jam but at, at, at least in my experience you know which is just that you know I'm a kind of short soft spoken Jewish guy <laughs> you know like uh, and and you know and and there are many you know soft spoken short Jewish guys at Pearl Jam but there's also lots of you know cops and firefighters and jocks and you know republicans and and it's and you know the one thing i think you can say about pearl jam is that it's um you know it's 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 people from pretty different backgrounds you know working class people um you know middle class people um east coast west coast midwest all just kind of side by side and i had this kind of um light bulb go off in my head like right before the band took the stage which was just that um you know, first, um, you know, how, how, how funny it is that, that Pearl Jam is this kind of band that, um, you know, I feel like you can see a band like Radiohead, you can see, I don't know, a band like the Arcade Fire and, and, you know, for better or worse, like, you know, you can kind of look around and, 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 and see many people who kind of look like you. Um, and yet, um, at Pearl Jam, I feel like you're just as likely to, to literally be standing or sitting next to someone who, you know, like is, is just from a very different walk of life. And and so as I was kind of thinking that, I, I realized that, um, you know, just having done the book, you, you know, there's something like 10 or 15 books, I think, by now about um, Nirvana and Kurt Cobain. You know, yeah, there's, sure. there's, something like, there's something like five or seven books about like, you know, Metallica and, and Green Day <laughs> and, and like, and I, I really like all these bands. I grew up with all these bands, but it always just struck me as weird that there had been one book that came out about the band in uh, 1998. There was a, you know, a really good um, kind of authorized coffee table book that came out for the documentary, but really there was, there was no um, like treatment I mean, I mean, I, I thought serious treatment about the band. And and so anyway, at that show in Chicago in 2016, which, you know, obviously I had no way of knowing at the time would end up being like really one of their last handful of shows for a good long time. Um, I, I, you know, I just thought, wow, like um, the 40,000 people in this venue and really like the 2 million people that they played to all year, like they just deserve like an honest I don't know like look at this band and not that I'm maybe the, the person to do it but I, I was like you know I don't I I should just give it a give it a shot no and and no that's that is interesting and you know we had considered uh that I know that there's a couple of volumes about the history of grunge uh you know Greg Prado just released a book on Soundgarden uh Charlie Cross released his book on uh, Nirvana 20 years ago Ever True you know, you have all of those, Michael Azarad, all that, but, but Pearl Jam, uh, you're right. I mean, their, their music, I know at one point you say in the book that you believe that Pearl Jam stands as the artist of the decade, that no one had a five uh, album streak that spanned the decade quite like they did. And uh, I, I'm inclined to agree with you. And so yeah. why does that not get more serious treatment? Because what, because they sold a million, they had the nerve to sell a million records in one week and get a bunch of frat boys at their concerts. I mean, it just seems, uh, it seems awfully punitive. And so I guess that's a way of saying that we appreciate the effort. Uh, speaking of effort, it sounds like it took a hell of a lot of effort 
you know, it sounds like you re- you really dove in to uh, all of these sources, and so so the the book kind of reads like a, a like a love story between you and all of your source material in some respects. Thank you for saying that. I mean, it you know it took about four years from I guess that day in Chicago to um, the day I finally you know sent off the proofs and and like got a vacation and and you know i have to say like the book changed a lot during that time you know like i I originally thought that i had a pretty good idea of just like how it should be told like uh you know i I thought i knew the story pretty well i knew like kind of the the dramatic parts but the structure that it that ultimately took you know which is kind of those 30 you know vignettes uh like it it was really born out of i want to say like partly like the experience of writing the book and, and, and more so like even trying to sell it by which I mean, like, you know, the point that you mentioned earlier about like, you know, like Pearl Jam kind of like, why are there 10 books about Nirvana and only one book about Pearl Jam? If you had heard some of the responses I got, (laughs) you know, from, from editors and publishers, like it was really eye opening, you know, because in, I would say on the one hand, like, like, you know, okay, Pearl Jam was like a very divisive band circa 1994, 1995, 1996. To a certain extent, like anyone who was around them, like it's, they're still like, you know, like, like some people are like, hell no. And some people are are like, you know, yes, like for life. The other thing, which like I found surprising, maybe you guys do or don't, like I definitely got one or two questions from editors to the effect of like, you know, let's be honest, like do Pearl Jam people buy books by which you really oh, meant, like, yeah. by which you really meant like, you know, let's be honest, do Pearl Jam people even read, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and, and I, and I, you know, like, and, and I realized like, wow, like you're like a liberal New York dude, like with sneakers on. And if this is your opinion about like 51% of the country, like, you know, you can see why a lot of this, why a lot of other stuff in this country is going on. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah. So yeah. exactly that I learned. What, yeah, what I, I mean, if, if I can chime in a bit here, um, going back to something that you said earlier, Ronan, about um, the eclecticism of a Pearl Jam audience. And this is what a lot of people don't understand why Pearl Jam is still there and why they're still huge. And uh, like and, and they, can, they can sell out any arena in the country, any amphitheater. They're they're there um, is because and I think you hinted at it. Um, they transcend social and sometimes even ethnic boundaries. Um, like you said, you go to a Pearl Jam show, you can you can find, you know, short intellectual liberal guys like us you can find cops you can find jocks blah 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 you know uh pearl jam kind of transcended those boundaries and the band that i would compare them to in that regard uh a lot of people may not agree to me it's pretty obvious it's the grateful dead Mm. uh the, the grateful dead were like that band and when they started out they were the hippie jam band for hippies and burnouts but as the years went on as the decades rolled on their audience expanded like pearl jams did and it became more inclusive you know the dead's fan base yeah, they, yeah you'll get hippies but you'll get cops you'll get republicans you'll get you'll get conservatives there as well who just love the music yeah and they love and they love the atmosphere and pearl jam is the band that really they're the last of that ilk of that kind of band, unless you want to count Fish, because Fish really were a direct, you know, hippie jam band. But like, I'm talking about the soul of it all. 
question for you, Ronan. Was the uh, was the person at the publisher who said that was he uh, younger than us, older than us? He he was around our age. I mean, and oh, okay, um, yeah. I mean, and but you know, it. I mean, I have to say, like I, um, like age aside or even background aside, like I, you know, I I, I think like I think you know, it, it's a fair question. Like, you know, if you're pitching a book about Radiohead, you know, that's one thing. If you're pitching a book about Pearl Jam, for some reason, like, I don't know, they they st- they started, you know, almost <laughs> exactly around the same time their, their fans overlapped so much. And yet Radiohead, you know, like no public, you know, any publisher would be like, oh yeah, obviously like, uh, you know, like, like, like that's the kind of band that, that their fans buy books. Pearl Jam, like I, I, I had to explain to them, like, I was like, look, here's how it works the people who have seen the band 150 times they show up at the venue first i was like mm-hmm. you know i was like they're there eight hours ahead of time to buy posters and t-shirts and i was like whether they will agree with my book or not they you know chances are they will buy it because like either they want to argue with it or like they want to support it you know what i mean but i was like this yeah. is not a, this is not a casual fan base and yeah. and right. I, and and and, you know, I'm sitting across from someone and I'm like, you would think just on the level of capitalism, you would want you'd be motivated to pursue this audience that has had nothing kind of thrown its way. Um, but, you know, it's it's just one of the things you learn, like writing a book like that, that, um, you know, like the response out in the in the real world has been so much more positive and organic than like you know, sure. that guy thought and, and yeah. I it, like, he couldn't have known that because he's never been to a show. He's never, you know, like right. the people, have, uh, you know, so anyway. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but the better question to ask, instead of asking, Oh, the bad guy who rejected the idea for the book, how old is he? No. The better question to ask, what kind of music does this guy listen to? <laughs> yeah. well, that's the better, so, that's the better question. Well, yeah. great well, point. well, great yeah. Point. So his, his question to me was, What's your beef with the chili peppers? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. But that's the thing with, with, and, and we'll get into this uh, in a bit, but one point is that to me that I, it became over time when, when this whole thing first started, uh, you know, Nirvana uh, hit number one, as, as you point out, uh, it uh, takes the place of uh, Michael Jackson's dangerous. Number one, our previous episode, we actually talked about that. Uh, but they hit at the same time. And when we lived through it, it was Nirvana and Pearl Jam. I love both records, but yeah, 10, but 10 was a much more of a passion for me. Um, I loved in utero, but versus and vitality was much more of a passion for me. And I think what, what's happened is whether it's the, uh, the, the mass media overlords and coincidentally, I was a journalist for 10 years, um, mostly music before I went to law school. Uh, so, I mean, I, it kind of takes one to know one. Uh, I think what happened was it, it was this notion where Pearl Jam faded and, you know, obviously because of what happened with Cobain and their, their music, obviously the best albums of that grunge era are Nevermind and In Utero. Uh, you know, just objectively, they're the best, but it, the Pearl Jams, it used to be Nirvana and Pearl Jam. And then for some reason, by like a decade later, uh, it had turned into a Nirvana or Pearl Jam. And Pearl yeah. Jam fell way off. 
because maybe of some of the attrition that, you know, of the binaural riot act era, but for whatever reason, they just didn't get the same long-term level of, of respect. Uh, one of the vibes I get through the book, and, and I think you say it a, a few times is that uh, Pearl Jam is a product of its time and its place and of the collective experience of our generation and of the culture. And you contemplate this idea of if they had hit five years earlier or five years later than 1991, given all the context of where society was and where the music business was, uh, would it have yeah. hit quite as well? Uh, and I came and I come away when I read the book. I mean, you know, you have a chapter where you kind of uh, you uh, marry uh, what happened to the Who in Cincinnati in 1979 with what happened to Pearl Jam in Denver in 2000. It sound it seems to me that this idea of time plus place plus experience can be the story of any band and any community of fans relationship mm. with, with any band. Uh, and so to me that when you say the publisher was like, I don't get this, it's like, well, you know, plug in any band and that'll be the story of any community out there. You know? Right. So, no, I think, I, I mean, I think that's really well said, like, you know, when I was researching this and, and kind of writing the early chapters, um, you know, one thing I, I found, which uh, I really did not know about was, you know, you kind of like, you know, the popular narrative is what, like, you know, heavy metal in the eighties and then grunge comes along and kind of, you know, dislodges it and there's a regime change. But in reading about like, 1988, 89, 1990, like there were all these things going on that kind of don't really fit that mold. And, you know, Jane's addiction is, is I think kind of like, like the most natural fit for this story because sure. you know, like the, yeah. the guys were such fans of theirs, but, you know, I think it was 1989 or 1990, if I'm not mistaken in LA, um, you know, when Depeche Mode, when their record Violator came out, there yeah. was, uh, you know, there was like a riot, I think, in downtown L.A., you know, with like 25,000 people and like helicopters overhead. Yeah. yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and and I think like, you know, like I was, I was, you know, there's footage of this. There's a really good Depeche Mode documentary. Like, like you could just as easily make the case that this is like, you know, the birth of alternative in in America. You know what I mean? Like there's a narrative where it goes like Depeche Mode, Jane's Addiction, Nine Inch Nails, you know, like that, that kind of more gothic strain. And 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 those bands were also like playing arenas and stadiums. And and so, um, yeah, they're like, you know, like what you're talking about, like like even five years, even one or two years, like um, if Jane's Addiction came out in 1992, you know, like like maybe they would have made five more records. You know what I mean? Like so it's all quite contingent. And and I think especially in Pearl Jam's case, like just the serendipity of it and the magic of it, like really worked out in a way that like, you know, you yeah. couldn't have planned it that way. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're like the perfect band to uh, rise up in the uh, the Bill Clinton rock the vote uh, 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 time period there. Uh, so one thing to uh, ask you about, Ronan, and maybe kidding with you here a little bit, you you start the book off by kind of uh, self-deprecatingly uh, telling the other super fans that you've only seen 57 shows. Yeah. Uh, 
And so this idea of the, the ranking of, of the super of the super fans, uh, and you also make reference to um, your fandom as being a guilty pleasure. Um, how do you how do you see this? I mean, and I mean, is this something that is a little bit of a uh, of a hidden uh, passion of yours? And 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 how do those super like if you meet somebody that's been to 150 shows? I mean, yeah. How do they how do they, how have they reacted to to, to this book? Mm. I mean, I have a few friends who have seen a hundred plus shows and, um, you know, including one of which I, one of whom I wrote about, she was, you know, she kind of was really helpful in just being like, this mm -hmm. is what works and what doesn't, um, you know, I like a lot of it, you know, is humor or trying to be, you know, I, 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 I mean, I, I think like, I, I kind of like books that, um, are just ambivalent about subjects, you know, like, I, I think that like, it's, it's fun to read a book that, um, you know, is positive or negative, but there, it's something about like, um, I don't know, like, like for me, my favorite artists and my favorite writers, my favorite bands, like there's very few people I feel completely unconflicted about. And I, mm -hmm. and I think it's just like a product of like having lived with them and, and having like come to appreciate their strengths and their, their faults. Um, in the case of Pearl Jam, I mean, like, I like, I mean, we were talking earlier about being cool, right? You know, like, like, I, I think that that's just kind of the easiest question. Like, is Pearl Jam a cool band? You know, like, in so in the real world, like, yeah, they're a rock and roll band, they're famous, and they, they, you know, get to play to 20,000 people. And that's cool. Like, but if you go to like, music critics, and like, Pitchfork, and, uh, you know, the, I don't know, like, indie rock world, and like, is a big lumbering white band white rock band like cool like i don't know in some case in some ways that's like the most uncool thing that's imaginable right now like um mm -hmm. i i um i don't know i i i find that like the people who are in the audience maybe i'm mistaken about this but like i find pearl jam fans to be like less conflicted than me like which is mm -hmm. part of what i like about it yeah <laughs> yeah you know like, like <laughs> yeah like i'm 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 kind of the guy who's there like grumpy and has his arms crossed and like wishes they would get to the obscure b-side like uh and, and there are <laughs> yeah. like, like annoying cranky people like that in the crowd but honestly i think that that's kind of what eddie vetter is you know what i mean like i think that mm -hmm. when he's watching the who and when he's watching pete townsend like he knows exactly like you know, the frequency of the B side that's being played. And, and I just think that that's like a form of love, you know, like, yes, in absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. and I was just going to say, like, when I, you know, you were talking earlier about the dead, like, like I, you know, when I was writing this, I really made sure to just try to read as much as I could about like reading books about the grateful dead, reading books about the who reading books about Bruce Springsteen and Neil Young. And just to see like, you know, how, you know, either it's like, either it's like, a straight up kind of saint's life where it's, you know, like everything they do is great and miraculous or it's like character assassination, you know? And I was like, I was like, there has, you know, there has to be like just a middle road between being like, they did some great stuff. They did some so-so stuff and like, let's just weigh the balance, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's the same thing. Like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big, I'm Neil Young is, is my guy. <clears throat> and I, you know, I mean, 
he's the one that I probably dig in the crates for most as far as, uh, as far as tapes and shows and, and, and things like that. And haven't been to a few shows of his, I think it's the same thing. It's this idea of, you know, what ride are, are, is he going to take me on? And, uh, you know, is he, is he going to play like, uh, uh, don't be denied or is he, is he going to play like something from trans on acoustic guitar and these types of things. And so it's, uh, when you go to see the magician, you want to see the magic. So, uh, so for you, uh, is this book is it for, well, I guess one way to phrase it is what was the most surprising thing for you about, uh, learning about writing this book? I mean, what did you uh, learn the most? And I don't know, I, I get this sense when I read the book, it's almost like a dialectic between, I'm telling a narrative about the band, but then also a narrative about being part of the community that cares this much about the band. And mm. so it's this, um, it's, it's almost like you're telling us about your excitement about the pink pop show in 1992, right. as much as about, about, uh, about pink pop or your, Again, there's there's context. Uh, my favorite paragraph in the entire book is, you know, is yield dropped. They did this radio show. And oh, by the way, two days later, uh, Bill Clinton denied uh, having sexual relationships, uh, sexual relations with that woman. You know? <laughs> and so this idea of, OK, so what was happening and where can we put this in and, and all of that? So I think there's there's a it, it's a very it's a very unique uh, exercise but being the guy that uh, did the exercise i mean i guess what did you get most out of it and what did you learn the most from it that maybe you didn't expect to yeah so i would say you know i, I really tried to do my diligence in terms of just listening to bootlegs and and almost going like day by day through their um early career you know just because i you know with them you know, as a writer, it's such a gift, you know, like there's websites where literally uh, 1300 uh, shows are archived and you can just listen to any of them like at any time. And so, you know, that's just something that I felt like I had, you know, like if I were writing this book in 1998, like you, you can be forgiven for only having access to a few bootlegs or whatever, but right now, like there's no excuse, you know what I mean? Like, like it's on you. So I, I really tried to listen to every show like in, 93, 94, 95. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and one thing I learned, you know, this is a little um, inside baseball, I guess, but like, you know, the, the narrative about them at the time was always like, you know, that the wheels were coming off the bus and like, they were, you know, hours away from breaking up and like Eddie Vedder was on suicide watch and, you know, like that it was, <laughs> that it was crazy, you know, and, and, and just listening to, to those tapes and, and really like, like, I mean, they were just on fire for one, like the band, I mean, like in, in 93, 94, it's, it's just like this, like almost fearsome machine, like, but there yeah. were, you know, like, like of the, I don't know, let's say 150 shows that they played, there were maybe two or three, I would say, where there were incidents. And, you know, those were the ones I wrote about, but yeah. like, it's amazing how those got magnified to the point where, 
um, you know, mm-hmm. people were, were really worried about them and really like, you know, sure that they were going to break up. And, and I guess it's a sign of just like how much people cared at the, at the time, like, you know, like that there was such scrutiny about them. Um, so that was like surprising. I just like, like, I mean, you know, always that things get hyped up and, and, but like, but they were just like, I don't know, doing their job and trying to play shows and, and keeping their head down. Um, and um, a lot of that was, was quite overstated. Um, the other thing I would say is just, um, you know, you know, I knew all along that I like that they're not the kind of band that's going to sit down with me for an eight hour interview. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and, and so I knew that like, there were facts in the public domain and then there were things that I could interpret and there were things I could kind of argue, but, you know, you have to remember with them too, like, you know, their story is a little bit uneven, right? Because like they're a band that's been around for three decades and in their first decade, you know, there was quite a bit of drama. There was just, you know, people coming in and out and, and, you know, stardom and all that. And then like, I would say after, I don't know, 2004, five, six, they more or less like get the ship steered straight and they're basically like a functional rock band. And so the drama, I think at least from 2006, seven onward, it's just, it's not there in the same way. And so you just kind of figure out like, how do you proportion a 30 year story? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so uh, it seems to me that, like you said, I think it was like 2001, 2002, and uh, either it was just changing tastes, and like you said, I think after pretty much after 2000, the 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 dawn of the um, or the the dusk of the white boy rock bands uh, had really had come, and uh, they like you said they settle down and become. Uh, just they become a big rock band, a big stable rock band, and so they they, they basically became elder statesmen. <laughs> yes, yeah. they basically yeah. became elder, elder statesmen, and and so now the story with them is basically about the community and about those moments where they sort of uh, did uh, intersect with the culture, uh, you know, as in the the stuff that happened in in Uniondale uh, or uh, or some of you know, the, the things that, that came up, uh, you know, per, uh, inter- intermittently, uh, in those, in those 15 years. Uh, Hey, one question for you. Uh, do you, are you aware if this band or if this book has gotten back to the band or if anybody's read it or, uh, have you gotten any feedback from their camp about their impression of, of what you produced? Yeah, no word back from base camp. However, um, weirdly like like multiple people that i have met and kind of sent the book to were like oh i sent a a copy to jeff or i sent a copy to stone um so you know and i was very flattered that um easy street records in seattle you know has it displayed there and was selling it and you know tweeted about and all that so um you know would i love to uh like have gotten you know two minutes of of feedback sure like did i think that that was ever on the table not so much but i um you know at the end of the day i think it was more for um i don't know the fans and uh and 
when I sent it off, I was like, you know, if I had another year to do this, like I'm sure it would look differently than result, but I felt like it was an honest book and I felt like um, there were things that I was positive about and things that I like was less positive about. (laughs) So, um, you know, I, uh, I think that's just the best you can do. On this episode, we started a new series that explores certain bands slash artists' influence and legacy with Pearl Jam, a legacy. For the next episode, yours truly curmudgeons will get bolder and actually defend a band that started their careers being trashed by rock critics for allegedly being Pearl Jam clones. This is, of course, Stone Temple Pilots. This will be the first episode in another series of the Curmudgeon Rock Report called In Defense Of, where we take bands or albums that are either critically derided or commercially ignored and argue for their worth. Email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod. So again, folks, we're here with uh, Ronan Gavoni. We're talking about both the band Pearl Jam and about his uh, terrific book, Not For You, Pearl Jam in the Present Tense. Uh, we like to take a little bit of a run through uh, Pearl Jam's history and, and the actual uh, albums. And uh, Absolutely. I, I'll, I'll defer to Arturo to lead that discussion with you, Ron. Um, the story of Pearl Jam kind of really is the story of the whole Seattle rock scene in a way, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, well, just in that... Um you know, three fifths of the band, I guess, you know, we're just uh, Seattle natives and, and, you know, and I think this is one of the coolest parts of the story is, you know, like on paper Pearl Jam, like was an instant success story, but then went to a little deeper, you know, Jeff Amen and and Stone Gossard had, you know, not one, but two bands and many Mm. years in, you know, the minor leagues, you know, working and, 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 honestly failing and, and almost yeah. thinking of quitting yeah so, yeah, yeah yeah i mean it's, it's interesting how it goes because with a i mean with green river like they were you know they were flat out underground band right and um it's interesting you mentioned jane's addiction um as like one of those you know uh, one of the one of the bands that like you know made alternative rock into the mainstream and they were uh, i'm a big jane's addiction fan myself um but like Jeff Ahmet in interviews, multiple interviews, he said that uh, um, one of the demarcation points of like the, the breakup of Green River is when the members of Green River went to see Jane's Addiction live and uh, how uh, uh, Mark Arm, the lead singer of Green River, hated it, like absolutely hated Jane's Addiction. And yeah. Jeff and Stone are there watching like, what are you talking about? This band's great. <laughs> you know, and that, that was, you know, no, I at mean, least- it, that, that's a perfect example where, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I have mixed feelings about Mark Arm and, but honey, I, I kind of I respect him or I would like to respect him. But, you know, I mean, if, if you saw Jane's addiction in, in 1989 and you're like, this sucks, then, then yeah, I can see why you might not be in a band with Jeff and Stone yeah. for very long. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I've always felt Jane's addiction was kind of an underrated influence on Pearl Jam musically. Um, especially in the 10 era. Um, and then Green River, you know, broke up, you know, Mark Arm went on to do Mud Honey, who I personally love. I'm a big Mud Honey fan. Um, but then, you know, you had Mother Love Bone, which is, I, I kind of agree with you. I don't think Mother Love Bone was ever that good. 
<laughs> except for like a few, a few Andrew Wood ballads. But the interesting thing about them, and I find it kind of, I don't know if you feel the same way, if you've heard Malfunction or not. Um, Andrew Wood's first band was Malfunction. And they were basically grunge kiss, you know, <laughs> it was basically taking glam metal, but like doing with a really cheeky tongue in cheek, ironic twist to it. You know, um, Andrew being Landrew, the love God and his whole on, on, uh, on stage uh, shtick. Um, so th- th- it was always kind of, you know, kind of lampooning that stuff. But then that band, he left that band to join uh, Jeff and Stone with Mother Love Bone. And they genuinely tried to be a genuine glam metal band a la la 1980s you know i mean I, i've always wondered if, if you thought there's such a, a strange dichotomy no i mean you you hit the nail on the head kiss i think was the most important band for all these guys like and yeah and, that, and that's kind of where like you know like i mean pearl jam is considered uncool now for very different reasons but at the time you know like they were considered kind of the suburban like like uh you know heavy metal dudes like that came out you know when chains and soundgarden nirvana all that were happening so um but again i like this is kind of what is great about them like they were like yeah this is us you know what i mean like uh you know like like eddie vetter sometimes you know you kind of hear him saying like yeah i was into the ramones and i was into stuff like this like jeff and stone were like no we were listening to kiss you know what i mean like and yeah. Aerosmith. <laughs> right. yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i mean it's 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 yeah it's kind of funny how like mother love bone really was trying to be they were trying to be the seattle poison um and 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 they were taking that like they were going that they were, we're, we're going for it man and we're party rockers and then andrew wood dies of an overdose <laughs> and then yep. all of a sudden everything changes and uh, I was I was wondering you know, from one Pearl Jam fan to another Ronan, um, you know, if you, and we've all heard Mother Love Bone. We're not big fans. We all thought they were kind of crappy, you know, glam metal. But uh, after Andrew Wood died, the music that especially Gossard started writing really changed, and it got darker, a little more serious. It's almost as if the band, like him and Ahmet, like just did a one eighty in their approach and their philosophy toward music. Yeah, we're going to make it. We're going to be rock stars with party rock. Your lead singer dies. Like, Oh, wait a minute. We got to do something different now. I mean, do you yeah. ever get that sense with them? A hundred percent. I mean, I think that um, both, you know, having your good friend and bandmate die. And also, you know, I think you can't forget, like by this point, you know, I think these guys were, six seven eight years into their career you know what yeah. i mean which are than most bands are around you know? and, right. yeah. and and i think uh not many people would have um you know like most people would have understood if they were like you know what i've been in eight years i'm gonna go apply mm-hmm. to law school go to med school you know like uh whatever like that's what people do when they're uh in their 20s like mid 20s and and to their and i think jeff actually was doing that jeff was like i think he was pretty close i i think if if stone had not been writing those songs like i I, like i you know who who can say but like um yeah like it's um it's this you know gear that that certain people kick into and i think that, that the drama in that moment you know is fully embedded in the in those songs yeah, and, yeah. And, and here's my take on on the that era. So all you know, all of the uh, the music that uh, Gossard and then Ament uh, were writing 
during that interim period that got to uh, Eddie uh, on that, you know, on that famous uh, tape uh, that made its way down there to San Diego. And, you know, the stuff that shows up on Temple of the Dog and, you know, the, uh, the footsteps of the world and all of those early uh, things, they never were really in that pocket again. Uh, there's a, there's a tempo, there's a, there's a drama, there's a, there's a pathos, there's a depth and a texture, um, not just to the, the arrangements, but also just the, the riffs and the music, uh, itself. And, uh, one of, one of our favorite, Arturo and I, we talk about a lot uh, about them a lot on our podcast is built the spell and, uh, Doug Marsh, the lead singer of uh, built the spell, uh, he, uh, they were, he had an interview, uh, back when perfect from now on was coming out and he was, uh, talking about the pressure he felt. And he was looking back at the, the, the album that kind of put them on that, that radar. There's nothing wrong with, uh, with love. And he yeah. was saying that, uh, when you don't know for sure that people are going to actually hear your music outside of your friends, it makes a huge difference. So, so this idea that they were writing from their hearts, maybe they were coping with the loss of Andrew Wood and that uh, indecision and this sort of this, this pivot point for all of those guys there. Uh, Cause I'm sure, you know, several of those bands, you know, Soundgarden, Screaming Trees, they were probably in, in some ways in, in the same kind of pivot point, is this going to work or not? And so I think maybe some of that music was born uh, from that emotional uh, state and they just happened to find like the perfect lead singer and, you know, the world's most wonderful, happy accident happens. And this, this synergy explodes from maybe what was uh, Gossard and Amit writing their form of poetry. Does that make sense to you? I mean, quite frankly, I wish I could have stolen that when I was writing it. It's uh, <laughs> that, probably a lot more elegant way than I put it. But no, I mean, I, I can't really say it better. Like there is an there's an innocence and 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 just kind of, uh, you know, like uh, a lack of um, self-consciousness. Uh, lack, exactly. I mean, uh, just about about how it's going to be heard. And and I love that that Doug Marsh said that too, because think about that, like Doug Marsh is right. Is, is, um, you know, like he's, he had pressure from Warner brothers for, you know, perfect from now on and, uh, keep it like a secret Pearl Jam had to follow up 10 and verses, you know what I mean? Like, so think yeah. about like those different levels of pressure, but yeah, I mean like, like verses and vitology, like, like, you know, like what would a psychiatrist say? You know what I mean? It's like, it's someone who's under, constant surveillance like that that's what those records are and uh and it's it it's in the lyrics and in the chords and in the riffs and 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 yeah. and, and 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 you know i guess like one thing i like about bands that kind of stick around is like you know as you say like your first record no one is looking no one is listening so you can you're 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 just kind of freed but you would think that like 25 30 years in like i mean people are watching pearl jam but the pressure is off in a way like and yeah. and and that's why like you know i feel like there are artists you know david bowie and leonard cohen or you know like the obvious examples but again like at the end of their career no one was really expecting them to do anything great and mm -hmm. and and so and so it kind of comes back around again and and that's kind of like 
you know, like this is not a comment about Gigaton, but I, you know, I'm always like, what if like their bat their best record is actually their last one? You know what I mean? Like it's not impossible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, with them it's not. And it's interesting you mentioned Gigaton. Uh it's gotta be the it's definitely the first record since uh yield to have a tolerable last third. And it's probably <laughs> the best last third of a record since Vitalogy. So who knows? You know, maybe they are getting to that point where they're gonna have a, a glorious third act. Yeah. Um, um Ronan, I want to talk to you about um jumping off on like a I guess the quote unquote attitude adjustment that Gossard and Ahmet had um after uh wood andrew wood died um and i want to connect this to eddie vetter because when vetter joined the band uh when he was in san diego i mean he was languishing in all these phony chili pepper you know bad funk rock bands right (laughs) and uh he got the call up joined you know he joined the band um and one thing pearl jam detractors have always accused eddie vetter of is uh being contrived you know, being calculated in his, you know, in his, uh, his dark, grim, you know, image. Um, and me personally, I've always felt, yeah, so what, <laughs> you know, it's, 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 uh, yes. I mean, he's a, he's an artist. He's a serious artist. Pearl Jam's a serious band making serious music and, 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 and his artistry comes from his soul, but at the same time, it's show business. What's wrong with putting up a little bit of an image because, you know, you know, Andrew Wood was like a Freddie Mercury disciple. Vetter's coming to a band where the old singer was that. And if I'm Vetter, I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to be the 180 degree opposite. If he's, if he was Freddie Mercury, I'm going to be Jim Morrison, you know, and I don't think there's yeah. anything wrong. I don't think there's anything wrong with that kind of image adjustment. I, I think it adds yeah. to the art. Me personally, what do you think Ronan? you're you're basically getting i think to the heart of like why people found eddie vetter so fascinating and frustrating and and you know still you know an object of interest 30 years later it's you know like in rock and roll it's this weird contradiction isn't it it's like you know david bowie's name was not david bowie joe strummer's name was joe strummer but you know these were all personas and yet you know, in Joe Strummer's case and Eddie Vedder's case, like the reason why people connect with them is because they're basically bleeding into the microphone. You know, it's, it's their authenticity and it's their heart. So you say to yourself, how can this guy like put so much of his heart on the line singing black? And yet how can he be such a phony, like in terms of like, whether he likes videos or not, I think like, you know, like I didn't really write about this because I, you know, I, this would all be speculation, but I think like, you know, like in a weird way, like, you know, George W. Bush was like a master at being underestimated, you know, like every yeah. time he said that he was dumb, like he, yeah. you know, he got his way. Ed is kind of that way too. Like, I think like he kind of plays up his like, whatever, like fake idiocy a little bit, but he's really quite shrewd. Like, yeah. I think like that, like, you know, he's a child actor. He knows what his, what, how he comes across on camera. And I think that like, especially at that time, you know, the early nineties, you weren't really expected to be like a super media savvy celebrity, you know, like, like, like when Bob Dylan was like, you know, uh, ducking and, 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 you know, like, like uh, playing with all these reporters that, you know, like, like that you're celebrities aren't supposed to do that. You know, you're supposed to be like, nice and smile and just answer your thing and and i think like ed was just doing his version of that 
Yeah. yeah. And, and I think there's something to be said also, like for, uh, you know, in all cultures and traditional folk art, the mask allows you to be more honest. Yep. You know? Yeah. And I, I, I think, I think that's what a lot of people, you know, you know, who, who accuse Vetter of this don't get that he's being as honest as he possibly can. And he can't do this as Eddie Mueller. He's got to do it as Eddie Vetter, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but that's just, that's just, you know, my, my thing, but anyway, um, Ronan. Okay. So 10 comes out. It's a slow but steady rise to iconic status. The band becomes superstars and generational spokesmen, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I remember where I was when I first heard Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit and watched the video for the first time. It changed me. It really fundamentally changed me. I remember where I was when I first heard Pearl Jam's Alive on the radio in Miami, living in Miami Beach, listening to Zeta. <laughs> um, do you remember where you were when you first heard Pearl Jam? Probably like... 30 minutes up on a side from you. Like, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Broward County, baby. <laughs> did you hear him on the radio or did you see him on MTV or? No, definitely MTV. Um, I mean, and I think that uh, like just by nature of your question, you're, you're, if I'm understanding you right, I mean, like that, that moment, you know, like it, you know, it was, it was only partly the fact that it was like, you know, the, uh, 10 classic records coming out in 1991. It was also the fact that like, I'm guessing it was similar in your school, like, you know, where I went to high school in suburban Broward County, like you go to school, you hang out with your friends, you go back home and then you turn on MTV. Like, yep. and it, it wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like the RT kids did that. And like the, the goth kids did that. Everybody did that. Like that was yep. just what it was just like, you know, like, yeah. and so I, I, you know, it was just, it was this moment when like technology and commerce and, and, and economics were just conspiring to like, you know, put this music on your doorstep to the point where like, you know, it was just hard not to have an opinion, you know, about yeah. nine inch nails, whatever, because that was, that was true popular culture at the time. It was mass culture. Yes. Um, and, and again, like, um, that worked out really well for some people. And, and, you know, I'm sure there were times in the nineties when Pearl Jam wishes they weren't, you know, on MTV every five minutes. So the, yeah. the medium was, I think, inseparable from just the music. And, and if, um, you know, like if that, if that had happened in 2001, I, I, you know, I, I wonder how many of those bands, you know, would have broken through. Yeah, yeah. No, 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 that's true because the internet had made things diffuse by then. Uh, one point to make um, with with Pearl Jam. Uh, so I'm from Syracuse, New York, and it was the same experience with us. It was, you know, it was everybody was watching MTV uh, and and everybody. And it, that was kind of what was in, informing us. So uh, I remember uh, Nirvana kind of snuck in. Uh, it was like this, eh, whatever. I remember because like, Allison Chains's Man, Man in the, the Box uh, hit uh, the equivalent of whatever TRL was at that point. First, uh, Nirvana's uh, Smells Like Teen Spirit sneaks in there. And I'm like, okay, didn't really pays me at first. Then it kind of snuck up on me. Um, and it, it bulldozed me, man. It fucking killed me when I, when I first saw that video and heard yeah. that song. The combination of the video and the audio, like Nirvana changed my life. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, and, and it ended up changing mine, too, because once I finally figured out, oh, okay, this is pretty good. I went out and bought the disc 
first spin of the disc blew me away immediately uh, listened to it it was around that time the beginning of january that uh, alive went into rotation uh and i that caught my attention i said you know that's a pretty good song you know i would like be listening to mtv while i was doing my homework or whatever uh it was and you point out in the book that pearl jam owes a lot of their success and a lot of their explosion to how they presented the music in a context outside of the pre-recorded album 10 uh the unplugged show that's what got me um and went out and bought the disc and for two years i was obsessed with that disc and i was obsessed <laughs> with their music i was obsessed with unplugged uh, they played uh, the Video Music Awards uh, there in 1992, uh, mesmerizing stuff. Uh, and, you know, I started to, they were the first band, I think, ever that I really sought out live recordings from, you know, back when, you know, they, there was this thing that they used to call, uh, like, uh, trading tapes. Uh, okay. That That's how I got started on trading tapes. But anyway, uh, so I think that's it. So we all remember where we were, and it was formative. But for them, I, I can't remember another band that uh, used MTV to present their music in a way other than through the videos and the pre-recorded stuff. That, that them getting an unplugged two months after coming onto the scene where it took Nirvana almost two years. Uh, I think you hit that right on the head uh, there. Yeah, I think that was a coup for them. And I think... Um... You know, it's one of those decisions probably that like there was probably, you know, like they probably agreed to it before they had even thought about it. You know, <laughs> I'm sure like if a year had gone by and then they asked them to do unplug, they probably would have said no. You know what I mean? Like, that that performance for me was life changing. And I mean, I, I had 10 and I I mean, I was just one of those people who listen to a bootleg of unplugged you know what i mean like uh like i just i um so and it holds up still it's it's weird yeah uh, um yeah no absolutely and then e even the video for even flow is a is a live recording which is yeah. which is way better and uh i'm kind of with you by the way that like 10 is one of those records that like i know you know eddie makes that comment like oh yeah that's a thing we did or I think it's <laughs> Jeff Amen or, or something like that, that a lot of good songs on the record, uh, not a terrible, I mean, it hasn't aged well, let's put it that way. Well, I disagree with that, Chris. I think it's aged pretty well. I mean, I, I think it's a cultural artifact of its time. And if you look at it in that way, I don't think it has aged, I don't think it has aged badly. And if you look at it in that perspective, you know, um, um, the way I would see the Beatles, Sgt. Peppers, you know, something like that would never come out now. But it's of its time. It defined its time in a way. It kind of makes it timeless in that sense, in my opinion. I guess it's just backwards way I see things. <laughs> it, yeah. But, but anyway, um, after the 10 period, we go into like the versus Vitalogy, no code 1993 to 96 period, which is basically, you know, Pearl Jam's pushback period right they're not they, they're not doing videos they're fighting Ticketmaster to get ticket prices down and um ronan i'm wondering um if you agree with me in this um like around this time pearl jam started shedding 
some of their old casual fans, you know, uh, and in my personal opinion, though, the, the, the dude, bro, jock element, a lot of that, they started cutting out in this period um, by being just more overtly political and outspoken in their, you know, in, in their, in their progressively, the progressive liberal social, uh, social issue stances. Oh, I agree with you that the the pairing of the audience certainly happened around that time, around 94, 95. I would also say, like, in addition to the politics, which, as you know, like, really kind of kicks in around um, Vitology and, and uh, Versus, yeah. you know, sonically, too, they just became, like, kind of an abrasive band, you know, like, yeah. they, like all the interludes on uh, Vitology, all the the kind of wayward jams, like like I have grown to appreciate those, but yeah. uh, you know, like like closing a record with a nine minute you know uh, tape collage piece, like that's a very <laughs> self that's a very self consciously uh, repellent move, and yeah. like I, I admire that, but they knew what they were doing, yep. and um, I I salute them, you know. Anyway, um, Ronan, uh, another question. Um, all these fights that Pearl Jam picked, you know, Ticketmaster, you know, um, um, all the other stuff. And around that, why do you, why do you think they picked all these fights that they themselves, and they're not dumb guys, they're pretty smart guys. They probably knew they couldn't win these fights. And yet they chose this road less traveled that they had to know will would have killed them and did eventually kind of kill them as a uh, um, 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 as a major radio marquee stadium act. It seems yeah. like this this kind of defiant independent streak and the lack of ambiguity as to causes, it eventually served them well, I guess, as far in the long term. But why do you think back then they chose that way? Well, I mean, I think personally it was not like a foregone conclusion in 1995 that the world's most powerful rock band could go to bat with Ticketmaster and get completely shut down. I think that right. that was a little bit of a surprise. Um, yeah. I think that they definitely knew that they were stepping into a big fight. I think they knew that it would be quite costly. I think that at a minimum they spent a couple hundred thousand dollars on legal fees. Mm. Uh, but I think yeah. that, you know, they had power they had a voice they had a platform um they had you know an issue too they like I, I think that now we have all just kind of raised the white flag and we pay our 15 dollars and ticket master service fees and even pearl gem works through them but at the time like you know there was a minute i think where um there was a real question like why can't the biggest band in the world just book its own tour like now you know you would like that infrastructure is a little bit different. And, and as a concert yeah. producer, like I, 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 I found that part of the story really interesting, but it's, um, you know, you think about it, like right now you have Google and Facebook and live nation and all these places, like these corporations seem invincible in 1995. Yeah. Like, I don't think they really like Ticketmaster was not as entrenched a force and yet mm. it was not even close, you know, like yeah. I think Pearl Jam. Yeah. Themselves. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I think that it's, 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 um, they could have, they could have, you know, you're right, like, just made life easy for themselves. They could have just done the tour, made a lot of money and, and not made a fuss. They could have just taken themselves off the road and done that too. But um, I think that that's why they have so much goodwill among their fans is like they stood for something, you know, yeah. and, and they, yeah, they makes lost. Sense. 
Makes sense. Uh, related question, Ronan, since I know you said you do uh, concert uh, production uh, and are, are familiar uh, with that. I'm just curious. Uh, the, we know that in terms of artist power, distribution, those types of things, uh, the Internet has tended to be a pretty great equalizer here over the last uh, 20 or so years. Um, what effect, like, let's say that uh, th- they wanted to pick up this fight in uh, 2002. Uh, could they have figured out a way, uh, you know, reasonably to to promote themselves. I know that like, again, this is before, you know, clear channel became live nation became my heart and all this kind of right. stuff. But would the internet had, have led to a path that, or, well, I guess more straightforward since you're there, did the internet <clears throat> fundamentally change the concert production business or is it sort of the same uh, model that that's always been there? Well, one thing I know, I know when they set up, you know, in 1995, when they did the Ticketmaster thing or the anti-Ticketmaster tour, you know, they did set up their own um, like ticketing startup. And I'm pretty sure there's like a Guinness Book of World Records like statistic where like they handled the most phone calls um, like in one day. Like there was something like, I don't know, tens of thousands of just phone lines that they had to, you know, arrange for. Mm-hmm. It, it's 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 mind boggling to think like the, you know, the the but yeah so i think that if they had um you know online ticketing i think like um you know a a lot of the things that we just take for granted um you know like security and and uh you know but again like think about it like why is it that uh after 75 years of popular music you know like like it takes, I don't know, five guys who, you know, from punk slash indie backgrounds, like in a, in a working class city, like to say like, you know what, maybe like there should be more than one way to, to do a concert. Like, and, mm-hmm. and if anything, like it, um, you know, it, it like, again, we're in New York, especially like every, you know, when I moved here in 2004, there were, indie promoters there were you know like diy shows there were you know there were there were places you could see things where you didn't um have a ticket master ticket like now everything is you know live nation or AEG, mm-hmm. and and again like this is you know like pearl jam has to their credit i think like, they 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 don't really draw much attention to themselves about this but they were so far ahead of the curve that mm-hmm. like we just now like i mean you know, you do Ticketmaster or you do like a little rinky dink startup and, and kind of cross your fingers and hope that, um, you know, but it's um, it's like it it is it's a lot less further along than you think it is. And wow. um, like um, and, and, you know, to your point about like the Internet kind of equalizing things like, yeah, you can say like, um, you know, a young band can get their record out and they can they can have a website up and they can be heard in a way that like you know, uh, wasn't true in 1992, but like, you know, yeah. you could also say like Spotify and, and YouTube, like, do they, have they really equalized things for, for people or, or have they kind of like made things really good for the, you know, the, 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 yeah, blockbuster? Like, well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. yeah, that's yeah. true. I mean, yeah. I mean, well, Spotify is one in, in, instance 
it, it's a strange thing. Like, you know, you end up on Spotify and I remember Lou Reed had a comment before he died that said he had gotten the lowest check uh, royalty check since he was like 14 playing the, the, uh, the ice cream shop in Long Island. Uh, but then you have the other, they have the other extreme, which is like the little Nas X thing where, you know, right time, right place. You buy a beat for 50 bucks. You put something out on TikTok or SoundCloud or something. And voila, a month later, you're a millionaire. So, uh, so I think that there is this sort of, yeah, the internet can give you great distribution. It can put you out there. Uh, but it does seem like kind of a crapshoot whether or not it's going to put you in the financial bird seat or it's going to give you the, the you know, actual power. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting divide. Yeah, I mean, it really is. But, you know, as I said, uh, Pearl Jam, you know, toward the end, they, toward the end of the 90s, they kind of got out of that. They kind of sort of <laughs> made peace with Ticketmaster. And then they kind of like they their quote unquote imperial phase. They, it ends with what I think is the really extremely underrated and overlooked yield album. Um, and, you know, you know, they have that they tour for that and they end the decade. Interestingly enough with the biggest hit single of their career, <laughs> a cover of the old 19 early 60s song, I think last kiss. And it was a huge hit for them. Ronan question. Last kiss. What the yeah. hell? <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. It's, what do you think? <laughs> I, I mean, how much time do you have? I don't know. You know, people love. The, I, I don't know what I can say. Like, it's uh, I, 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 I try not to begrudge like anyone their happiness, but I, I'm not a fan of the song. But uh, I guess uh, you know, teach their own. As the co-hosts and co-producers of the Curmudgeon Rock Report, we like to think of ourselves as a populist operation. That explains why we sought to bring Ronan Gavoni onto the air with us today to discuss his book, Not For You, Pearl Jam and the Present Tense. Our premise, of course, is this. Pearl Jam is a band that just doesn't get the respect it deserves from the critics, music bloggers, historians, and other fancy intelligentsia types you would think would fawn over these guys and their legacy. But they don't. We don't pretend, however, that Pearl Jam is the only one of these underappreciated, blatantly dissed bands of their era, or of any other era for that matter. Is there a band that you feel deserves the same treatment that we're giving Pearl Jam on this episode? Let us know. Reach out immediately. The email address again is curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, I will say this, Ronan, I think your take on yield uh, in the book is like spot on, like spot on. Uh, I think that the beginning of that record um, is probably the best streak or it's personally my favorite streak of anything uh, that they've done. So I think we're we have synergy there. And then, of course, I get to ask kind of a Chris Farley's question. Is it real? Is it really true that they've only played no way? 10 times in concert since that album came out. I mean, I think for some reason stone is not a big fan of it. Like uh, I've seen, I, I don't, I can't remember if it was Pearl jam 20 or one of those shows, but uh, like Ed almost like calling an audible and wanting to play that and stone just getting like outright annoyed. Like, uh, mm -hmm. so I, you know, uh, 
again, I, I, I think that the, this is just part of what people love about them is like this, uh, you know, this kind of human story, like just about, um, you know, there's the song and there's like the more larger than life kind of aspect. And then you're like, you're like, well, it's Stone and it's Ed and it's Jeff, like uh, just dudes, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that, pretty, that pretty much is, is the case that like, uh, if you think about it, like Gossard and Ament and uh, to an extent McCready, they just have this utter normalness to them. And then they have this front guy that, that this front man who's got this charisma and, you know, built that mythology of, of, uh, around him. And, uh, you know, it is, it is just kind of an interesting, uh, an interesting mix. So, yeah, I mean, um, yeah, it's true, you know, and then, and then moving on to like, you know, 2000, you know, and, uh, the, 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 the new century and the new decade, um, the first significant event for Pearl Jam that year was, uh, significant for bad reasons, <laughs> you know, obviously, uh, um, the Roskilde festival disaster, uh, in Denmark where, um, uh, I, I believe it's Denmark where, uh, uh, you know, several people were just crushed to death near the front of the stage. I remember reading this on YouTube. I wonder what your opinion is, Ronan. Um, you, know, you find a lot of stupid stuff on the YouTube comment section, but sometimes you find some interesting stuff. And uh, from the video that I was watching, someone mentioned that he, he or she, I think it was a he, uh, believes that beginning with this festival uh, and, and, and the disaster that happened there, um, from that point onward, Stone Gossard and speci specifically Gossard kind of started mailing it in from a creative standpoint. I mean, he's still playing. He's still performing. He's always on tour with those guys whenever they want him. He's always there. But it, ne he, it never seemed like his heart was ever really in it as much as it was before. I'm not sure. I'm kind of on the fence in that theory. What do you think? Um, well, I, I don't agree, but, um, you know, I, I think to say someone is phoning it in for 20 years is a little insulting, but I, I yeah. would, I, I would say this, like, which is, um, you know, there's a really good book that a journalist from Denmark wrote about Roskilde and, and, um, he kind of took it upon himself to, um, like, be an intermediary between the families and the band. And I think, yeah. and I think it was stone more than anyone who made maybe half a dozen trips. I, uh, I, I might even be under counting that, but to Sweden and Denmark and, and became quite friendly with the families. And, and, um, and so I, you know, I, I don't think you can overstate the importance of that event. I've been thinking about Roscoe a lot lately too, just obviously because of Houston and, and yes. Travis Scott and all that. And, and, um, you know, I, I like, look, you can say on the one hand, like uh, maybe that did take the wind out of Pearl Jam a little bit and, 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 and kind of make them a different band. Like um, who can say, you know what I mean? Like, uh, but um, I, um you know, I guess I'm struck more than anything about how, like, you know, in Houston, like, you know, the show went on like 37 minutes or whatever after there were ambulances in the crowd. Like, yeah, with, I know. With, with Pearl Jam, they were like, you know, I mean, there were there were a couple of songs in, but, you know, 
they mm-hmm. were upset that they didn't stop five minutes earlier. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. you, so it's just the, it's just a different level of, um, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, I think that that's just, that's, that's the line, isn't it? Like, like every, it's everything before that and after that with them. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I guess, I guess you can say that, but, but, but also on the, um, the concert security uh, thing, uh, I, I live, just outside of Houston, Ronan, and uh, obviously it's been a big uh, story here. But come on, 1979 in Cincinnati, 2000 in Denmark, and now here we are in 2021, uh, and it happens again. Um, it's just it it boggles my mind that I don't know if it's a uh, a failure of promotion or just. You know, there will always be uh, overly excitable people in dangerous spots or something. But I don't know, maybe it's equivalent of, you know, Altamont in 69 and Woodstock in 99. And it's like, does anybody ever learn uh, from these things? You know, it's just sort of a, you know, there's a continuum. Again, it's, you know, time, place and experience. I don't know. I mean, and and, any thoughts on that, that, that here we are 21 years later and we have another one of these things. Well, I mean, I, I guess I hasten to say like, I, you know, I, I wasn't there and I really have not seen any of the footage or anything, but like, yeah, you know, from what I know, like, I guess about Travis Scott and just what I've read, like, you know, the energy that seems to be like, <clears throat> you know, in that seems to have been like in the, the venue that night you know it's he likes starting mosh pits you know what i mean like he mm-hmm. start he, he you know and it's funny that like not funny sorry it's 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 ironic and weird that like mosh pits is precisely like what this whole scene we've been talking about like you know pearl jam and nirvana like that that was like and and at a certain point those guys were like you know what this is lame you know what i mean like <laughs> like I, there was basically like a year or two where they were like okay, like we had in the video and it's fun and, and, you know, but like starting 1993, I feel like <clears throat> you can hear Ed say like, you know what, let's not do this anymore. Or even, you know, like, like, like you're hurting people. And, yeah. uh, and, and so that's the part where I'm like, you know, what is it about, um, you know, live music today, pop music today, whatever that like, that like of all the things to revive like violence in the crowd like i i don't i don't know it's um like i i i I, so yeah but um i think if anything like you know pearl jam has always been just super um mindful and and you know careful with their audience and and you know that will only be more so you know when they come back around yeah yeah makes sense makes sense so so Around, around also like, you know, we're in 2000. Um, this is a fandom question, pure fandom question. Um, starting in 2000 also, this is kind of like the beginning of diminishing returns when it comes to the quality of Pearl Jam's recorded output. Uh, Ronan, we as fans, how, how do we deal with <laughs> the, 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 the arrival of bad albums by our dearly beloved bands? <laughs> Well, I mean, good question. Like I choose. I, I, to... I felt this. I felt this with REM. I'm a big REM fan and they started to suck after a while, you know, and yeah, it's hard. It's hard. 
Um, I mean, you know, there are people who are real partisans of uh, the avocado record. There's people who really like lightning bolt. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I, um, I don't know, I guess like intellectually, like I, 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 I like the fact that um, a band can be around long enough that, you know, like there's Radiohead fans who think like, like, okay computer is not their best record you know what i mean like uh, like they're like like there's like a whole post okay computer like fandom so um i think it's fine you know what i mean like i like i um i i you know my taste is 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 pretty different and i um i think like they just have so many like things that we all agree on that um you know like it's just not really worth fighting over (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah yeah pretty, Good way yeah, to answer. Per, yeah yeah pretty pretty much back to the point as we go down the pearl jam timeline um we get to 0203 which is the wars in iraq and afghanistan and as i'm sure we all remember um pearl jam were like the only really the only big name mainstream rock band to uh loudly protest uh those wars and uh the political involvement there um this, of course, you know, it killed the Dixie Chicks careers, <laughs> but it didn't kill Pearl Jam's career. So I, mean, I think I know the answer to this. But Ronan, what do you think? What does that say about rock fandom and country fandom? <laughs> uh, that women don't get a fair shake. Yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> that, 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 that might have something to do with it. Or yeah. or at least uh, country artists. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> They're just certain certain things. Yeah. I just, it, 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 it fascinates, uh, it fascinates me uh, on yeah. that. And go ahead. I also, I also think it comes down to like the, the fandom of the genres in general. I mean, country music, fa- mainstream country music fans in general tend to be a bit right-wing conservative. Whereas, you know, rock music fans, in, not to say there aren't any, you know, conservative rock fans, but rock fans in general tend to be a more on the liberal spectrum. That's just my opinion. You know, right. Except when it comes to the war in Iraq, I guess. Yeah. 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 Except, except when, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was like the one fissure. I mean, like, I mean, like you said that, you know, you get all of these things and all these commonalities and except for when uh, Eddie wants to come out in a rubber bush mask and, you know, do, do his little uh, sarcastic bit. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, but here's the thing though. Like I, I, I read interviews with Vetter and a couple of the other, I think, Ament mentioned this too that in Denver you had the incident with the George Bush mask uh, Uniondale when Slater Kinney opened you had that thing but both of those guys have said that you know yeah you know there were a lot of people booing us but we were doing similar stuff like that in other areas other cities and we got a lot of cheers as well it wasn't all yeah. booze yeah yeah, yeah. So. and well I mean it, it never is with with a band that has that kind of a, a, a mixture of, of fans uh, run a question. So you say in the book that you really kind of um, you didn't start. I think you said you attended your first Pearl Jam show in 97, but it was really in about 2001 that the uh, involvement in the I guess you could call it the Pearl Jam community or that sort of serious uh, uh, fandom of, you know, of knowing which one of the 585 versions of Evenflow uh, is the best. so, and this is a, at the time of like right around that same time that we're talking about that there's this break from, you know, they have, you know, they've gotten through yield and now they're starting to normalize, which means they're starting to fade from uh, the mainstream. This is around the same time that you joined the, uh, the community. 
Uh, and so that is a, a, an interesting point too of your journey. How did you get started with this? And I know that obviously we said that we like Pearl Jam and all those bands when we were kids. How did you hook onto this train and, and get it rolling downhill? Yeah, I can tell you exactly. So I, you know, basically I was fully on board <laughs> up until around, um, I mean, it's weird because I, one of my favorite releases was um, Merkin Ball. Like I, I mean, oh, up, until, yeah. up until Merkin Ball, I was all in. And then weirdly, like no, no code was like, I don't know, six months later. And by that point I was kind of checked out. I don't know. Like uh, it was just, you know, I was 18 years old. I was obsessed with, you know, propaganda and Fugazi and, uh, and the promise ring and Texas is the reason. And <laughs> I was graduating from high school. And so I just, you know, like, I think by that, by around no code, like I was like, Oh, I like Oasis and I like, you know, <laughs> hip hop and whatever. Um, and so I just checked out for two or three years and then I went to college and I still remember my uh, roommate picked me up in uh, Hartford at the airport and saying, dude, Pearl Jam has this new record. It's called yield. It's amazing. And we started listening to it and I was like, this is not bad. And then like we saw them play in Hartford. It was the day after the show at um, MSG where they played breath and um, yeah. they played breath in Hartford too. And I just didn't, I was like, Oh cool. Like I didn't realize why it was special. And then the bootlegs came out. Um, and that's when I really started getting into it. Like, that's when, um, like, I think I bought five of them, um, in 2000 and just like hearing, you know, like the Seattle bootleg with like, um, the kids are all right and stuff like that. And hearing, you know, don't be shy and, and really like the covers and like, and, um, and hearing like how they played the, no code stuff like hearing how they played present tense and hearing how they played in my tree like um that was when i was like oh like i'm i'm all in like and then you know i was just like i graduated college and i you know could travel and had a little bit of money and a credit card and didn't mind going mm -hmm. to see like four shows in philly like so from that point you know um and yeah, I mean, I wish I wish I could have seen, you know, the earlier tours, but I was, you know, 15. So it was just it was, you know, unrealistic. <laughs> yeah. I, I said. Well, I was going to say, too, like uh, I didn't you know, I didn't really write about this in the book, but, um, you know, I'll just mention this like, you know, when I moved to New York, which was in 2004, um, which was around when I really started seeing a ton of shows, um, maybe you know paradoxically i was really this is when i was really getting into classical music and really getting into electronic music and on the surface like that's kind of a contradiction like i guess but what i realized and this is kind of why i've really got into classical music like you know obviously pearl jam people will argue all day about the merits of you know the 94 tour versus 03 you know or matt cameron versus dave abruzzi's and classical music people like you know, maybe not surprisingly, like they will argue with you just as much about like <laughs> the Glenn Gould 1955 recording of the Bach Goldberg variations versus the 1982, you know, like which Beethoven conductor did the seventh symphony of the best. Like, so, and it was, and, and 
it was that bootleg culture about Pearl Jam that I really appreciated. Like just how yeah. like how there were how there were like you know shows that quote everybody knew, and then there were shows that like you know if you didn't know to listen to the mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, Charlotte, North Carolina show, like, but that's you know a gem, like, uh, like, and that's that's exactly like classical music is like sure. you can you can spend years listening and just stumble up, up upon something, and um, I don't know, so uh, they just made a lot of sense to me, like side by side. Yeah, and that, that's actually a great point because I have uh, family friends uh, and uh, and well, I'm kind of like this with. Uh, with jazz and even jam band music too. I mean, the idea of, of uh, there really is uh, an ethos to no two things are ever the same. Yes. <laughs> you know? And so there's this uh, selectivity. So, uh, so at least on the timeline now, are uh, we, are yeah, now, I, we're now approaching I actually, actually, no, no, yeah, yeah, I got a question related to what you guys were just talking about, about rediscovering Pearl Jam. Uh-huh. Um, and this question is this, in 2006, Pearl Jam released a self-titled album or the Avocado record, you know, um, um, at the time it was, you know, hailed as, as a comeback. Right. Uh, it was critically, uh, critically praised. I know, Ronan, you're not a big fan of it. Me, I just think it's OK. I think it's just solid, nothing special. Um, and the year after this, in 2007, Eddie Vedder uh, found solo success with the soundtrack to the movie Into the Wild. Um, which I think is fantastic. Um, and arguably <laughs> the soundtrack was more successful than the movie. Um, so the two questions, uh, number one, do you, do you think, like I think, um, that the success of this soundtrack of Into the Wild that Vetter had as a solo artist, that it somehow reflected back positively on Pearl Jam? And number two, from this period onward, from 06, 07 onward, do you think this is like the beginning of the normalization and the acceptance of the cult of Pearl Jam as something that's all right, it's cool, you know? I mean, I'll answer that uh, in reverse if I can. I mean, I think definitely 2006 is the tour where, I mean, I think they played more shows for that tour than any since 10. Um, That's definitely the one where they just become like, a very well-oiled professional machine where there's just not really much drama there there are surprises and changes night by night but um you're not you know it's not like the uniondale show you know like there's no uniondale show in 06 like or really maybe ever after again like uh so which you know it's not the worst um to your first question about avocado versus uh into the wild it's a good question i mean like you know, I guess I always wondered why Ed waited 16 years to make a solo record. You know, mm-hmm. I'm sure he had songs that um, could have constituted one before. You almost wonder, like, which songs he kept for himself and yeah. Yeah. to what extent, like, Into the Wild is, like... Like, I think Av- Avocado was a successful record for them like commercially critically but like you almost wonder to what extent that's him being like no really we are still relevant or i'm still relevant at the very least like uh and um i don't know like uh like i think ed solo is a really interesting thing too like you know i saw him on that tour in 07 at the beacon and 
which is like a 4,000 seat theater. Yeah. And yeah, it was not my favorite show. Like, I, I don't mm. know, maybe I was just not in the mental space at that time. Like, and so, you know, I, I wrote in the book, you know, about how, like when he played again, a solo tour in 2019, I, you know, I was hesitant because I was like, I was like, well, it's not Pearl Jam. Like it's, you know, Pearl Jam in Europe is a no brainer. It's an instant, you know, but I was like, Eddie Vedder in Lisbon, like seems a little bit, uh, indulgent like mm-hmm. but that show i mean honestly was top five for me all time like uh like like i mean and and i maybe it was again my mood maybe it was just like you know where i was at yeah. with the book but like when he is I, I i think the solo show has changed too but like um i mean i i, I yeah. i'm not sure i'll miss him again like like solo just because like that was so moving and uh like it just it's not pearl jam it's a different thing and and it's uh like if anything it kind of brings you back to early like 90s where you're like oh god like this guy is just like like you know yeah yeah he can't look away (laughs) yeah oh no he 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 captures the moment of the mood in a live setting i think as well as anybody who's ever lived uh, he he's just I mean, like I said, he, it's not just the charisma, but he just has a it's almost like he gets locked in to a purpose or, a you know, not to sound cheesy, but almost like a communal experience with the audience. And so you know, when he when he gets in that groove, I mean, he's as good as anyone uh, to kind of for what it, it's worth comments. Uh, one, I think you're both wrong about Avocado. I think that's easily the best record they've done since Yield. Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe i i, I yeah. might agree with that yeah yeah easily <laughs> uh but then uh i would actually pick eddie's uh, and i can't remember the name of it his his ukulele record uh as his better solo work than uh than end of the wild um i don't know if you probably don't agree with that ronan but uh i I'm, I, like, I, I like that one a lot actually um i i mean i like them for different reasons and different tunes like uh mm-hmm. but i like you know, yeah. I mean, like, it's interesting too. like, I think everyone in that band has done solo records, you know, like, yes. uh, and, and it's, um, again, it's interesting to compare them to Radiohead because like in Radiohead, even the singer and like the rhythm guitarists have done solo records. Nobody really cares. Like, but it's, yeah. you know, with the exception of maybe Johnny Greenwood, like doing there'll be blood, like people, yeah. like they kind of just want them to stick with the band. Like, yeah, yeah, no, that, no, that's true. Although, I mean, that that actually is a good memory too. I loved uh, the Brad record from 1997 mm. uh, that Stone and, and and friends did. So I I adore the Mad Season record that McCready did with uh, Lane Staley. That's 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 my thing, right? That's my thing right there. You yeah. Know? So um, anyway, was well, speaking of sticking together. Um, <laughs> well, Pearl Jam stuck together for a long, long ass time until they got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, they're now a legacy band, you know, they're, I mean, if not top 10, they really should be on anyone's list of the top 20 American bands of all time. And I really do believe that, um, Ronan, my question for you, now that we've kind of like, you know, we're at that, you know, the, the, they're, they're the old man, you know, elder state, like I said, before, the elder statesman, uh, stage, how does the excitement of a Pearl Jam show now generate? What does it generate for you now? Well, it's been a minute since I've seen them. Sadly, <laughs> yeah, I did not go to any of the festival shows. Uh, yeah. I, not like mostly because I'm just a brat and I just yeah. want to 
be the full thing in an arena. But um, look, I'll say this, like we on Twitter and, and online, like everyone was trying to figure out what they would play first in uh, New Jersey. You know, I, some people said, um oceans some people said alive some people said long road which maybe would have been the obvious one you know but what are they open with three songs from their new record yeah i know i i saw that that like what's it called super wolf uh right and 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 so i i just kind of cracked up at that like i was like i was like you know what i'm not sure those would have been the first three that i would have asked for but like god bless them just for like keeping us guessing you know what i mean but for you, the author of this book and, you know, a, you know, a Pearl Jam fanatic, um, what do you think is really uh, uh, what marks the enduring legacy and the importance of Pearl Jam back then until now? Like, why were they important and why they still matter? And what is the what is what what is their legacy about? Um, well, I mean, I think they matter first and foremost because of the music. You know, I think that it's kind of like the easiest thing to take for granted. And I think that in their case, especially like they do so many other things, their activism and their fan service and their just ethics that like you're tempted or one is tempted to be like, you know, looking at all the secondary things. But, um, you know, like. I've been in bars like where um, better man comes on for karaoke and, you know, like there, there are just like, um, there are songs, you know, like Wonderwall and better man and yeah. uh, you know, like mm-hmm. that, just, um, you know, for, it doesn't matter what year it came out. It doesn't matter. Like if you heard on MTV, like, like they just have a handful maybe two handfuls of indestructible tunes like that um, that really speak to people across language across um age like and um Mm -hmm. you know that's why you can see eddie vetter play to twenty thousand people in portugal like most of whom you know english is not their primary language and they sing every word like right um you know on top of that like i think that um you know, there's many bands, you know, like, I don't know, the Foo Fighters have been around for 25 years. I, I like, I don't know a ton about them, but I, I, I guess I'd be surprised if I knew that, like, the person who signed up for the Foo Fighters fan club the first year was still in the front row. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, there, yeah. Things that Pearl Jam where, like, you know, they don't really need to send out a seven inch single. You know what I mean? They don't really need to send out a fan newsletter or, like, yeah. you know, have like uh whatever infant onesie like uh you know in their merch section like but it's uh it's i don't know like you just get the sense that like there's a human being on the other end um and i just don't think you can overstate that and on that note uh ronan gavoni uh thank you uh so much for hanging out with us here for a little bit and um giving us uh, your thoughts and your uh, experiences as a, uh, as a uh, Pearl Jam fan, as a student of uh, uh, their music and of that era and of the culture that they fit in and out of. Uh, We really appreciate you being here, man. And uh, tell folks coincidentally the best way that they can, 
that they can uh, get a hold of this book or uh, channels through which they can buy this book, not named Amazon? Yes. Um, well, I think it's only fitting for a Pearl Jam uh, theme book. Uh, if you can support your nearest uh, bookstore uh, and the good people who go to the trouble of uh you know, curating shelves and choosing favorites. Um, it just came out in paperback uh, cool. a week or two ago. And uh, for anyone in um, Hungary, Serbia, Italy, Spain, or one other country I'm not remembering, uh, it will also be out in your language soon. Um, and I just want to say to both of you guys, um, having done, I don't know, maybe a dozen or so interviews, um, you can definitely tell when people have read the book and when they haven't, and when they have thought about it, when they haven't, I I've had probably three interviews where people say, um, how many times have you seen the band, which makes you wonder if they even opened it. Like, uh, uh, you know, but, um, I really yeah. appreciate just, um, you know, the thoughtfulness and I hope that we can have a beer or something and, uh, talk. I'd love to. No, no, absolutely. Well, all right. That was awesome. Uh, Ronan is a really, really sharp guy, and it was uh, fantastic uh, picking his brain about Pearl Jam and about uh, uh, fan culture and about the last 30 years of our history uh, here as, uh, as Gen Xers. So now we are going to do our usual uh, shtick here, and we're entering the ball. You hear the coins dropping. Uh, you hear that little funk. That means that Arturo and I are getting on our hazmat suits and we are, uh, we are spraying the nuclear walls, looking for uh, the, uh, the finest cockroaches among uh, our uh, collective, uh, what, what do you call it? CDs, MP3s, vinyl. <laughs> I mean, what, what, whatever the medium you physical, want to call it. Just call it physical media. Physical media. No, there is no virtual media in the vault. There is only physical media. That's and so right. we, are, we are pulling out physical albums, uh, one each of old stuff. You know, Parallel Universe is new stuff. The Vault is old stuff. And so uh, this is, again, this is album reviews. Again, this is old stuff. So, Arturo, what's your old stuff this week? My old stuff is not that old. It's from 16 years ago. But it is an old guy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is uh, Robert Plant and his 2005 album, Mighty Rearranger. Now, Robert Plant is featured on this episode's Vault segment because as of this recording, Plant and Alison Krauss's new album, uh, Raise the Roof, will have been released. Hint, hint, that may be uh, uh, included in our parallel universe for next episode. Um, that album, of course, is the highly anticipated follow-up to Plant and Krauss's brilliant Grammy Award-winning album, Raising Sand, uh, from 2007. Now, for our loyal curmudgeonly listeners out there, if I have to explain to you who Robert Plant is, you probably should not be listening to this podcast. Yeah, I was going to say, get, <laughs> yeah, get, get the fuck out. <laughs> Nevertheless, I will explain anyway. He was the legendary lead singer of the iconic rock band Led Zeppelin. And sorry, folks, I'll draw the line when it comes to explaining who Led Zeppelin were. No need to explain that. Okay. Um, like a lot of rock legends from the 1960s and 70s, uh, Plant's 1980s output was sketchy at best. Um, it was mostly overproduced, slick pop, firmly entrenched and dated in that era. 
lots of reverb, lots of corny synthesizers, thin compressed guitars and drums that sounded like bomb explosions, you know? Wait, oh yeah. And, 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 and heavy on the sentimental ballads, you know? Yeah. What you didn't like big log <laughs> crazy in the ship of fools. Yeah, no, I no, I didn't. No, I never dug that. Um, however, he had a bit of a comeback in the 1990s when he reunited with Zeppelin guitarist, Jimmy page, uh, that resulted in 1994's No Quarter. Robert Plant and Jimmy Page unleaded a live album of mostly reworked Zeppelin songs with a few new ones done with a Moroccan string band and an Egyptian orchestra. Uh, they came back in 1998 with Walking into Clarksdale, an album of mostly original songs that was surprisingly mediocre <laughs> considering that this yeah, was a, the talent, yeah. this was essentially a Led Zeppelin reunion in all but name. Gee, I wonder what basis John Paul Jones must have thought of all this page and plant activity. Yeah. <laughs> he must have been pissed off. Well, anyway. well, well if you remember uh, when they got inducted into the hall of fame, this is when they were starting all this stuff. Uh, John yeah. Paul Jones comes up there and says, uh, uh, it's a pleasure to come into the uh, rock and roll hall of fame with you guys. Hopefully one day you'll remember my phone number. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a dig for sure. Mm -hmm. um, a few a few years later, this all brings us to 2005, when Plant unleashed Mighty Rearranger with his at the time new backing band, uh, The Strange Sensation. Now I can't speak for everyone, but for yours truly and these curmudgeonly years, it was a revelation to hear Plant sound this regenerated. This lively, this swinging, this rocking, and this contemporary for 2005, and this exotic. And the exoticism comes from the fact that while Plant indulged in North African rhythms and textures in his collaborations with Jimmy Page, it's the off-kilter desert blues of West Africa, especially after the, you know, the then emergence of Tuareg nomad band Tinariwen that really informed this album. Uh, Shine It All Around was the super bass groovy leadoff track and single that got the Grammy nomination, but it's Tin Pan Alley with its tense, soft, loud dynamics that comes closest to the, I guess we would call the majestic power of Led Zeppelin. Uh, uh, Tin Pan Valley, by the way, not Tin oh, Pan Valley. Alley. Oh, thank, thank you for correcting me. Tin Pan Valley. Um, ar <laughs> arguably, it's the most Zeppelin-esque moment of Plant's solo career, which is telling considering he spent most of his solo career avoiding the Led Zepp mystique. Um, there's another song called Freedom Fries. Uh, it's the track that most gives away its hand and its debt to West African blues with this that tight-ass syncopated groove. Uh, drummer Clive Deemer, the drummer of the, the, the new, the strange sensation. He's the secret star of this show. Um, he's clearly indebted to John Bonham and his heaviness as any drummer would, who's playing with Robert Plant, right? Well, yeah, sure. Yeah. But it's, a uh, it, it's heaviness put through a West African filter of groove. Uh, it's, 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 it's really hypnotic, uh, the way he plays and the way he carries a lot of the music on this album, um, subtle electronic textures, shade, moody tracks like Enchanter. Um, you get the sweet Birdsian Rickenbacker guitars that ornament, uh, the gore or, 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 or provide an ornament, uh, to the gorgeous dancing in heaven. Um, you have a song called somebody knocking, which somehow makes, acoustic African blues sound weirdly psychedelic. 
Um, Plant also puts his best foot forward with the lyrics as well. Uh, they veer from scathing critiques of a vapid society obsessed with media. Guess who looked into the future here? Yeah, no shit. <laughs> and and uh, allegorical, not so subtle protests of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, if you're lucky enough to listen to a version of the album that has the bonus track "Red, White, and Blue," you'll hear a song that you you yet you you hear Robert Plant overtly attacking the archetype of the jingoistic, ignorant, intolerant white American male. Um, Planty pulls no punches on this album, lyrically nor musically. Um, it's important to note that every song on this album was co-written with members of the Strange Sensation Band. Nevertheless, it really doesn't diminish what Plant accomplished by one iota. This isn't only his greatest solo work, it's his best solo album by fucking far. And uh, one that makes his otherwise great and more celebrated collaboration with Alison Krauss seem pretty lightweight by comparison. So, yeah, and, and he's done a pretty a couple of pretty good records on his own here in the last decade, too, uh, not yeah. just with Alison Krauss. I think, like you said, this was kind of uh, what woke him up. Uh, Plant is, uh, I will say this, he's one of the great interpreters of yeah. uh, vernacular or world or... Uh, I guess you can even go as far as to say sort of indigenous musics. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, uh, stealing from Willie Dixon and Robert Johnson is kind of what uh, made him his money. Uh, yeah. But, uh, but he just knows how to sing into those, into those rhythms. I mean, uh, here's a guy, like I said, he uh, takes the Mississippi blues guys and mainstreams them, but he's also uh, bright enough and brilliant enough that him and Allison Krauss do uh, the uh, the Everly Brothers cover there, Gone, Gone, Gone. Yeah. It's just extraordinary of how he kind of captures the the kind of the rockabilly spirit that it was written with. Like he yeah. sings it, like they sing that better than Don and Phil. Uh, yeah. It's kind of amazing. So, but yeah, no, this record, uh, need to mention Red, White, and Blue uh, is included on the version uh, of the album that is available on Spotify. Aha. Uh, so, so it is. So, so it's on. Okay. So it's there. Okay. Yeah. It is not a hidden track or a bonus track. It is, it is there in, in full glory, uh, for download, uh, just as I always am apt to do 116,462, uh, downloads, uh, to date. Uh, let's get that up by a million folks because we know there's a million of you listening right now. Yeah. But it, it wasn't on the original CD version in 2005. Red, right. white, and blue. Yeah. yeah, and and like you said, there were a couple of reasons for that. I mean, one probably you know at it was around that time that um, that the uh, the iPods and uh, MP3s were taking off, and so all of a sudden there was this less of an emphasis on filling a disc uh, yeah. with as much music as possible. But also, like you said, it was two thousand five, and it's uh, an anti-war song in two thousand five, which right was like a third rail for anybody that wanted a career with the exception of Pearl Jam, as we yeah. distinguished earlier in this episode. Right. Uh, right. That was like the one band that didn't get killed that spoke up. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's there. And again, it's, it's good to see uh, Robert Plant uh, still kicking. Uh, really looking forward to listen to hearing the, the new, uh, the new uh, 
plant Krauss record. I'm imagining that T-Bone Burnett is involved in this one too. Yes, as well. he is. He, he produced it as well. Yep. Yeah. Cause again, uh, T-Bone is just awesome. Um, so yep. Robert Plant, who, uh, for whatever reason, I guess what, what is Plant now? Like 73? Yes, he is 70. He turned 73 this year. Yeah. And think about him that even when he was 20 years old, he looked old. So, so, <laughs> it's, so, it's, not, it's something about the British. They, 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 they just age quickly. Yeah. Or, or maybe there's his bone structure or something, but even when he was 20, he looked old and now, <laughs> and now he's actually old. Right, so, so from one classic rocker to another. Yes. And, uh, not just classic rocker, classic, classic British rocker. Now, yeah. uh, we're going to look at, at, uh, the work of Stevie Winwood and traffic here in a sec. Uh, so, you know, Steve Winwood, uh, he's as essential, to the breakout of uh, British-born uh, American-inspired rock as, as Plan is, but not as indelible and uh, not as uh, immovable uh, in terms of, of history, which is too damn bad, uh, as I'll get into here uh, sh- shortly. Uh, we're going to be focusing on the album John Barleycorn Must Die from 1970, uh, a personal favorite of mine. So here are my thoughts. Steve Winwood is uh, one of Rock's uh, most appreciated uh, genius, unappreciated geniuses. Uh, most of you probably remember Winwood's incessantly played, unendingly annoying number one hit from the mid '80s, "Higher Love," and the even more annoying middle-aged white boy blue stomp "Roll with It" a couple years Roll later. Roll with it, baby. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. It was just it corny as hell and too bad because if you rewind to a couple of decades before then, we are then examining one of British rock's great singer songwriters and organ players of that fertile era. That, of course, is saying a lot. I mean, a lot. Uh, back then, if Steve Winwood was involved. Uh, whether it be in the writing of your songs or in the joining of your band, chances are that what you were doing was pretty freaking great. <laughs> uh, the Spencer Davis Group's fabulous fall Motown R&B anthem, Give Me Some Lovin', that is 16-year-old Stevie on vocals in Hammond, Oregon. Uh, Chicago's rockin' rendition of I'm a Man, Winwood co-wrote that. Uh, the organ part on Jimi Hendrix's Voodoo Child, Yes, and, I was gonna. I was gonna say that. I was gonna interrupt yes. you. You beat me yeah. to it. Yep, and uh, we're talking about the awesome full live version, not the single. Uh, yep, that is Steve Winwood having the nerve to solo jam right alongside the mighty king of the axe. Hell, this guy even helped save Eric Clapton from himself, not once but twice, allowing the guitar god to shut up and play in both Eric Clapton and the Powerhouse and then Blind Faith. Uh, but Winwood's coolest and uh, most uh, uh, indelible and incredible work came as a founding member of the band Traffic, which was rightfully inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2004. Now, with Traffic, uh, Winwood joined forces with Jim Capaldi, Dave Mason, and Chris Wood to form one of the most original and consistently surprising, surprising bands that I have encountered in my own rock and roll journey. Uh, They first formed in 1967 and released the album Mr. Fantasy. Uh, This first Bali was decidedly psychedelic and jammy, though Winwood's preternatural gifts as a blue-eyed soul singer 
distinguished traffic from a pack of bands dambling in a similar aesthetic at the time. Uh, he supplied them with striking melodies and an ability to translate Capaldi's hippy-dippy lyrics. Now, 1968 found the band delivering their most well-known song, Feeling All Right. Now, this is a groovy Dave Mason pen tune uh, that was made much more famous by Joe Cocker and then rocked very, very hard years later by the Black Crows. I actually think the Cocker version is the best version of that song. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, Cock Cocker's version is definitely the, the best version. But uh, the Black Crows, uh, they're one of the Curmudgeon Rock Report minted, awesome, great classic bands of all time. Uh, their version's pretty damn good, too. Uh, we move into 1969, which proved rocky for traffic and uh, on and off infighting caused the group to disband there for a while uh, after the next album and uh, not so great album, Last Exit. Now, uh, it was during this time away from traffic in 1969, Winwood worked with Clapton and Blind Faith, uh, which is very, very good stuff, <clears throat> and w with uh, Ginger Baker, uh, who obviously worked with Clapton and Cream and uh uh, Winwood was part of Jim, Ginger Baker's Air Force. Uh, and in both of these cases, uh, he was grounding slot blues, as I will call it, with feeling and maybe even uh, some pathos. So now uh, we have the reunion of traffic. Uh, they found their way uh, back together as a trio uh, without Dave Mason this time. And they recorded what I think is their absolute masterpiece. John Barleycorn must die. Uh, now, since it's sandwiched uh, between Feeling All Right and uh, 1972's The Low Spark of High Heel Boys, which is the traffic album that our curmudgeonly community may be most familiar with, uh, Barleycorn is something of a lost classic. But I'm here to bring it back into the light, dang it. Uh, the album's music is written by Winwood and Winwood alone, with lyrics provided by Capaldi. And oh, what a musical brew Winwood cooks up here. This is a fabulous mashing of jazz, soul, pop, and folk, where Hammond C3 organ can exist side by side with flutes, where sharp tenor sax solos somehow enhance laid back piano and clap drum grooves, and nasty ass electric guitar solos drop their way into back porch folk soul hybrids. Uh, some highlights. There's the seven and a half minute uh, opening instrumental, Glad, uh, which is just, uh, I how do you describe it? It's just freaking cool. It's just got this uh, kind of almost New Orleans kind of funky, uh, kind of almost not not laid back. And, but I, would, also I, would, not I, would, I would I would describe it as like early Chicago, but actually good. Yeah, I, that's 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 pretty good description, actually. But it's got. But it's got this really just kind of eclectic, fun mix of instrumentation, uh, uh, fantastic tenor sax. And it starts off as kind of this kind of, you know, clap, you know tap your foot, kind of up-tempo, uh, little uh, uh, shifty, uh, not quite rocker. And it's really got, well, hey, you know, it's a, it's a well-named song. It's a very glad vibe. But then as it goes <laughs> along, it, it slowly gets woozy. And it, it slows down into this almost kind of maybe not psychedelic, but almost kind of spooky and mystic, you know, mysterious, uh, sexy outro. And, uh, you know, the piano and sax never quite uh, disappear. Uh, so uh, that's tremendous. We have a couple of other things. Empty Pages uh, is, is a marvelous uh, a pop ditty 
that has it's um, got this uh, electric piano solo in the middle of it that I'm sure Alain Toussaint uh, might be uh, proud of uh, as the papas of this kind of thing uh, lightly approaches funk. Uh, and this kind of thing happens several times throughout the course of this record. Um, it's one of these unique uh, records that it rocks balls without actually rocking balls. <laughs> and it's and it's all in the rhythm and the grooves and there's a simultaneous and when would was this gift there's a simultaneous looseness and tightness the songs are tight the playing is loose and so it's all in how you manipulate the spaces in between the instrumentation it's uh, it's pretty awesome uh so traffic would go on to make three more albums uh at one point inviting dave mason back for a couple of those uh, before breaking up for good in the mid-1970s. Of course, as we mentioned, uh, Winwood's star rose much higher than this afterward, uh, while traffic itself mostly faded into the dollar bins of rock history, unfortunately, kind of pisses me off. Uh, no matter, traffic represents Winwood's uh, best and uh, most uh, shiningly fantastical, uh, wonderful work, and John Barleycorn Must Die is the eclectic, wondrous center of that sublime, sublime, sublime accumulation of music. What say you? Um, I like this album a lot. Yeah, I mean, uh, Traffic have always been a very underrated band uh, throughout, you know, rock history as the decades have moved on. They've always been overshadowed by bands like the Grateful Dead. And, understandable, you know, the, the Dead are awesome. But uh, but they've always been overshadowed by the other jam bands, you know, the, the, the Dead and the Almond Brothers and all that stuff. And Traffic deserves a little more attention than that. Um, I actually, honestly, I'm, I, I'm more of a fan of the Low Spark of High Heeled Boys. That's my yeah. personal favorite Traffic album. Yeah. Um, but, this, but this one's got some great stuff, too. Like I said, Glad. You know, Glad was a hit for a reason. <laughs> That's yeah. why it's a staple on classic rock radio. Yeah, I mean, well, there's Glad, and then, well, I mean, well, the two songs you hear mostly from Traffic are really, well, obviously feeling all right, but Mr. Fantasy probably yeah. is the one that gets the most right. play. Uh, right. And then, obviously, the, the Low Spark uh, probably gets some play, too. And then, uh, yeah, like I said, Low Spark has is, is got more sort of traditional, sort of accessible uh, pop melodies. And, yeah. Uh, and it's more, certainly more economical. Uh, it, you know, it's worth mentioning. It did. Winwood had range because the you know the title song there, John Barleycorn Must Die, is something that would make Fairport Convention jealous. You know, it's right, it, right. It's 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 very elves in the forest kind of stuff. Uh, <laughs> as to to bring out an old inside joke uh, between the two of us. Yeah, but uh, but anyway, like I said, uh, part of the purpose of the vault is to bring out stuff that is either criminally ignored or is obscure with a cool story, or you're making a case uh, for an artist. Occasionally we'll go mainstream. Uh, we haven't, we, 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 did, we pulled a neat trick here. We, we, pick, we picked two big names with uh, at doing stuff that no one pays nearly enough attention to. Yeah, I mean, Winwood, you know, this is arguably Traffic's most o overlooked album. And Robert Plant, I mean, he, he'll always go down as the voice of Led Zeppelin. That's what he is. He always will be that. He's like uh, enshrined uh, and, 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 and he's frozen in carbonite like Han Solo is that, you know. But, yeah, and, uh, and if he was frozen in carbonite, we would still all be paying attention to his trousers as we do in Song Remains the Same. Uh, <laughs> uh, e either he was pulling a Derek Smalls 
or uh, he was more hung than uh, most horses in the world. <laughs> yeah, no shit. Well, and, uh, and on that note, congratulations, Robert Plant, on your new album coming out. Congratulations on the curmudgeons giving you love for your greatest solo work. And congratulations on Steve Winwood, the old timers, baby boomer rockers getting some love. Absolutely. Now- so now we come to, we're leaving the vault. And folks, thank you for hanging out with us. Remember, curmudgeonrock at gmail.com, at curmudgeonpod, and very, very soon, the Facebook uh, uh, group uh, uh, will be up there. We want to thank Ronan Gavoni again. Uh, uh, remember, the name of the book is uh, uh, Not For You, uh, Pearl Jam and the Present Tense. His name is Ronan Gavoni. That's G-I-V-O-N-Y. Uh, we encourage you to buy it anywhere except Amazon. Uh <laughs> You know, as Ronan mentioned, there are record stores that have sold this thing. There are probably indie bookstores. Uh, there, I know that when Arturo visited me here in Houston, we went to a record store where he was able to buy a book on the replacements. So uh, give love to your local indie record store because chances are they will have the cool books. So here we are at the end of another episode of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Uh, we just wanted to thank Ronan Gavoni again. For coming on the show and indulging us in conversation about Pearl Jam and his book, Not For You, Pearl Jam in the Present Tense, which you can pick up at a local bookstore or a local record store, and that would be doing a great service to your community, uh, and uh, you can uh, revisit a band we sure, uh, we're sure that you love. So uh, tune in to the next episode of our Unbelieving Podcast here. Your podcast when we'll be talking about Stone Temple Pilots. Uh, be well, y'all, and we'll talk to you soon.